so the rewards of procrastination never never cease to end. We were we were all set to record yesterday when uh, I got wind that Apple was going to issue a statement on. Uh, or more than a statement, really, which we'll get into in a moment on the battery thing. So we we narrowly avoided having an entirely moot dis- moot point discussion on the iPhone battery thing uh, in the can, and instead here we are recording on uh, Friday, the 29th of January, and we've got it all all laid out it's in front the, of us. It's the future. It's still December. It's still 17. Let's get right into it. The 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 story has got to be. The iPhone, uh, it's funny because it's, it's uh, even just summarizing it, it's complicated enough. Like I've had trouble writing headlines because I keep wanting to just use the word iPhone battery throttling, but they're not throttling the battery. They're throttling the CPU, but they're not actually just throttling their CPU. They're throttling all sorts of things. They're throttling uh, even the speakers. uh, Yeah, they're, they're, they're quieting the speakers. They're dimming the, the screen. They're doing. Did you, did you see Apollo thirteen? Did you see that movie? Yes, I actually just rewatched it recently. Okay, there is a great. So one of the dramas in Apollo thirteen, and I, I swear this actually ties in perfectly with this story, is given after the explosion, and they're trying to figure up how to turn everything on when they get back to Earth, so that they can they can re-enter the atmosphere and and splash down and survive. And they've been going for days and with with almost everything shut off because uh, otherwise they wouldn't have enough resources to get back. So they've shut off a bunch of stuff, but they have to turn it back on. They have to turn on the main module the command module in order to land and uh what they do is gary sinise who you know isn't in the ship even though he was supposed to be is back in houston and what they do and it's a very dramatic part of the movie is they're trying to figure out a startup sequence it's literally what do we turn on and in what order because they know how much power they can get out of the battery Right. And if it goes above a certain number, the you know the needle kind of pins, and everybody in the control room goes, "Oh no, that failed." And and uh, Gary Sinise basically says, "All right, let's let's try it again. Let's try another one." And they keep going through that. And I kept thinking about that scene this week because it's basically the same where Apple's engineers were looking at a battery and the limits of a taxed battery, an older battery, and asking themselves, "What can we shut off?" What can we turn down the power on in order to stay below that moment where the system looks at the battery and realizes it cannot get enough voltage and goes, I'm shutting down, which is what this is all trying to avoid is an, a different annoyance, which yeah. is it used to be, it would just hit that hit that number where the, the battery couldn't supply enough juice and the phone would be like, it jiggles up, I'm out of here. And and uh, but it is it's just like Gary Sinise flipping switches in the in the Apollo yeah. command module. It's like how do we get under the limit? And it speaks to the complexity of what these batteries do in these devices. That it, it I I think I'm I, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. That I tend to just think of it as effectively as as like the graphic. A representation of the battery on screen that it's like a tank of, right. a, t- a tank of energy you know it's a it's mm-hmm. a cylinder of energy and you can assign it a percentage in terms of how full it is and when there's plenty of energy it runs and when it gets low you can optionally go into the low power mode 
where the battery goes from green to yellow and certain things are turned off like anim- you know animations are tuned down to a lower frame rate uh, who knows what else they do I, I don't know i don't know if they've <laughs> among other things they haven't fully documented i'm not quite sure they've fully documented exactly what low power mode does uh and then it goes to red when you're in critical danger and then when it runs out of energy the device turns off but it's really more complicated than that and and the thing that that this whole saga seems to be about is that when certain things are happening on the iPhone that need more energy, like the CPU is performing at a, uh, a peak level for a sustained amount of time, it needs to draw more energy from the battery than it does when it's doing something idle. And older batteries that are depleted it's not just that they you get less that like the easy way to think about it is that oh i have an older iphone the battery's depleted i get less battery i have to charge more throughout the day to keep it going but it's not as simple as that it it's no longer able to provide a peak sustained level of energy like a fresh battery could yeah the um the term i think the key to all of this actually and i i I talked to somebody who understands these issues and uh not a little birdie but i did talk to somebody who understands electrical stuff and batteries and who said it's about it's all about impedance and Mm -hmm. if you look at the tech note which apple posted it gets into the nitty-gritty the word impedance is never mentioned in the letter to customers right but in the tech note it says one uh, attribute that affects instantaneous power delivery is the battery's impedance, which is basically like how hard it is to get electrons out of the battery. And the older a battery is, also the colder a battery is, or the if it's got a low charge, the impedance is less, which means that the electrons flow slower, and when you need to pull power from it, um, the voltage drops. Like that just because... Uh, just by definition, the, the 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 power can't flow out as quickly, and that's what this is all about. Is in an older battery, but also in a cold battery. If you're in some place where it's you know minus ten, um, if you've ever had to deal with battery operated stuff in the in the extreme cold, it's the same thing. Which is that that's like your battery's acting like it's old, whether it is or not. Um, and that's what this is. That's what this is all about. This is these batteries get older, the impedance rises, and it becomes harder to maintain a higher voltage. And that totally goes against the metaphor that we've all kind of. I think I, I don't want to blame us for this because it, it's the makers of electronic devices have sold us this metaphor because right. this metaphor is easy to understand for people who are not electrical engineers, like Apple. Apple wants everything to be a black box, right? Apple wants everything to be magic. But the the blackest black box of all, I think, is maybe the battery where, like, we all just want to think, oh, it's at 83% or it's at 21%. And that works great sometimes. Like, um, there's a story about how the iPhone, when it gets to 100%, you know, you can't keep charging a battery that's not that's that's full. And if you keep trying to charge it, it's bad for the battery. Um, so... Apple, like, fudges on a, a, what your battery percentage is at a high degree. Like, when it gets to 100%, it stops charging, and and there's a certain amount it's allowed to drop before it starts charging it again. But it always says it's 100%. And that's because if it said, if you un, if you left your phone overnight and you unplugged it and it said 94%, you'd be like, what the hell, Apple? But they're doing yeah. that in the background because of battery health issues. So this is, le- this is a little bit like that. Um, 
And up until this point, the biggest controversy about this, and I don't know if people in your family saw this. I saw it with people in my family a lot, which is on an older phone, you are at 40% and it shuts off. Mm-hmm. And you yep. go, you say, what the hell? Why did it just shut off if yep. I've got 40%? If, if the tank is 40% full, I should be able to use it. And the answer is, well, it's older, it's getting low on charge, and it reached a point where it couldn't provide enough power for the, for the system. And so your phone shut down. And, you know, that's bad, right? So instead we get we get this. And this is technically this is what Apple is trying to do to keep that phone from uh, from shutting down by flipping all those all those switches. Yeah, I, I I definitely saw that. I I saw it personally once or twice. Uh, it was long enough ago, and, and the fix that they shipped a year ago in ten two one, like all all of a sudden iOS ten point two point one is is in the news. Uh, yeah. I, I I think, and I think if I'm recalling correctly, it was my wife Amy who was seeing it more often and she was a a an adherent of the display the percentage in the status bar alongside the icon right. um and knew and, and you know and that's a popular feature as as you know it, it it's almost to me like it was always a curious thing to see people in my family who had that on as as just like like i i often say on the on the podcast that i'm uh, an inveterate snoop at looking at people's screens, like on airplanes, you know, like I don't like want to read their email. I just like to see what they're doing. Um, and, and I, one thing I would, I, I always look at is like, do typical people have that battery percentage on? Cause a, I think it's an interesting feature we can talk about it. Um, but B it's proof that typical people do turn on non-default settings. You know, like there's a, a lot of people and there are people who don't like typical users who just really never go into settings. But I think the iPhone has a couple of features that that make it obvious at a glance whether somebody has done something. The battery percentage is one. Um, the scaling factor is another. I found it, I, I noticed that my mom, who has a six, either a six or six S, I forget, but she has it set to the zoomed mode where it's running like the SE-sized uh, user interface system-wide, you know, and she's older and that's obvious why, but I thought that was interesting because that wasn't something I helped her set up. Um, and the battery percentage is one, but anyway, that meant that when you hit this shut off, it's my long, long way of saying that when people's phones would shut off, they often knew exactly what the percentage was before it shut down. And they knew that it was at like 40% or something like that. Exactly. And it just felt yeah. like, it felt like they were robbed. And, and again, well, it, it completely breaks the metaphor of of it's just a gas tank that I'm yeah. draining. Yeah, the gas tank metaphor really is it. There's no better way of putting it that that's what we think of. And your car, a, a gas gasoline powered car, runs exactly the same with a full tank of gas as it does with a the last gasps of gas. You know, until you're literally. Right. You know, using the last few drops of gasoline, your car goes the same speed, you know, with the same amount of, you know, energy in the pedal and and the radio, the the volume of the radio is exactly the same. The headlights are the same brightness. Um, It it is an easy metaphor, but it really is wrong. And I think the other factor that shows this with that when when the phones were when the iPhones were unexpectedly (laughs) powering down. is that it it 
to my knowledge, it was never happening to people with like a full charge. It was always like, oh, I had like 50% left or 40% left, right. you know, and it's, it's what you mentioned before, which is that at that point when the battery's at 40%, it's, it's not just that it only has half the storage that, you know, half the energy that it had at a full charge. It's that it's no longer able to provide as much in a energy in a burst as it used to. Right. And you get voltage droop which right. is basically under load, it's trying to pull a lot of power from that battery, and the battery is voltage drops. Right. And at that point, it's red alert for the system. Yeah, right. and, yeah, and, no, and I can't, can't, can't operate without voltage, right? It can't. Right. So what does it do? It either shuts down or it reduces, aggressively reduces power consumption, which is very clearly what the mandate was for the, uh, the electrical team at Apple on the iPhone. <laughs> uh, and, and if anything, I think it's hard for people to get their... Uh, to- come to grips with this because if anything we think of gasoline powered cars as a messy literally you know it pollutes the air a a messy analog uh system uh and we think of these digital devices as being so neat and clean you know that it's either providing energy or not the battery either has, you know, it's all binary. It's, it's, it is, you know, that there are no shades of gray. Uh, the battery either has a charge or it doesn't have a charge. And if it has a charge, it's on and everything runs. And if it doesn't, then everything, nothing, you know, needs to be charged. That's it. But that's not the truth. It's actually really more of an analog, ugly, uh, you know, what, what does Apple say in the tech note? A couple of times they use the word chemically, Chemically degraded is that what they say? Um, uh, chemical chemical age yeah. happens a lot. Yeah, it's like a high chemical age where it's just that's what we think of as it's an old battery. It's, it's not as it's not as good. And these are rechargeable batteries, which is also different chemistry from back when we just used sort of like single use batteries. Um, so the chemistry is different. And even even you know as people you and I who have been using Apple laptops for a while like. But the battery, the battery technology being used in them has changed over time. We used to be told, like every so often, you needed to deplete your battery and yeah. then recharge it because it, otherwise it would be like it would have a battery memory and it would, and that, the, and then at some point they're like, no, 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 don't do that anymore. We, yeah. That's that's no longer the case, right? Because they changed to a different method of storing energy, a different battery type, and so you know th- this does change over time. But in the end. Yeah, would it? I remember reading a story at some point where somebody was trying to make a fuel cell for mobile devices, which I think never went anywhere. But the idea there would be like literally you're putting hydrogen in your phone and then it uses it. And that would be like a gas tank, right? That would literally be like a gas tank. But, um, you know, right now, these chemical batteries are the way that, that we get to have these light, uh, computers that we take with us everywhere and like i said it's it's we want to think of their magic and the manufacturers encourage us to think that they're kind of magic and simple but they're not they're 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 it's actually kind of messy and ugly underneath the the surface yeah and i think that that is one of the traps that apple fell into which is um you know my take on this from the outset has been that this is primarily a communication problem. And I, I actually think that even in Apple's letter to customers yesterday, that that's pretty much what they acknowledged. I mean, they even, you know, the, the sentence 
we apologize is in there. It is, it is a genuine, uh, I think a genuine apology. Uh, but what they're apologizing for is not what the iPhone is doing and was programmed to do. It's for not communicating what was going on and why and leaving customers to, uh, you know, be confused or think they're imagining things. Um, it, it, it's such a perfect storm of things where, where there's been this trope for years that Apple purposefully, you know, it's part of planned obsolescence when a new iPhone right. comes out. And it's, it's true because new versions of iOS tend to come out always come out. The major new versions of iOS are tied to the release of new iPhones. iOS 12 will come out next September when new iPhones come out. Uh, I mean, you can pretty much, uh, you know, make a pretty safe wager on that. Um, but the theory, you know, is that app, when new iPhones come out, Apple issues a software update that purposefully slows down two-year-old iPhones so that owners of two years old iPhones think, well, I should go buy the new iPhone because my, now my iPhone is slow. And, you know, I've been saying, no, this isn't what they do or that, you know, it, I'm not denying that your phone might be slow after an update. It, it, you know, I'm not, you know, you're the one with the phone. You, you say it's slow. It might be slow, but that's not why it's slow for years. We, you know, we in the Apple punditry industry have been saying, no, Apple doesn't do this. And now the story comes out that here's this thing where iOS is slowing down your iPhone deliberately. Yeah, it sounds an awful lot like the thing that everybody was paranoid about. And right. even though it's not quite the same thing, it sounds an awful lot like it. Right. And, and I mean, Apple... Okay, so I think there are two... So one side of this is, look, the chemistry is the reality here. And voltage and something needed to be done because, you know, take your pick. Sudden shutdowns or degraded performance. But Apple... Apple bears a lot of this blame for a few reasons. I want to take you back, uh, and I want to thank Neelay Patel for finding this link yesterday and tweeting it out. I wrote a story in Macworld in 2007 where basically Greg Joswiak called me up to try and do some damage control over this story that was people... Uh, p- there was a story that had gone around that basically said... After 400 times you plug in and unplug your iPhone to charge it, it the battery won't work anymore. And of course, this is when at the peak of like phones with remo- without removable batteries are are were new and terrifying, and it was one of the knocks on the original iPhone. Right. And they said, okay, it's like a complete cycle; it's very different. Um, they they said a lot of things that are completely accurate in this story from July two thousand seven. You know, I say the iPhone, like every battery ever made, it's going to lose the ability to hold a charge over time. Um, so, it won't necessarily evaporate in two years, but the fact is that sooner or later the iPhone's battery will die. And that's that's not wrong. But what Jaws said to me in that story, and I quote him directly, is most iPhone users will realize, as most iPod customers realized, that they never needed to replace their batteries. And what he's really saying is um, you're going to be able to use this even two years from now and it'll be fine, but we will also offer a battery replacement program. And this is, I think, one of Apple's challenges is they didn't communicate what they were doing in degrading performance and why it was actually a good thing because it meant, congratulations, your phone's not going to automatically shut down. But I think Apple, with its design philosophy of trying to hit that battery number at uh, of a brand new phone, um, but be as thin and light as possible, maybe didn't give themselves enough headroom for batteries to age and still be able to kind of operate gracefully into a third year. I think Apple is guilty of 
like thinking of how they how people at Apple use phones, which is that they get a, a new phone every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I look at the performance problems people report in a two or three year old phone when they do an iOS update, and I feel like I don't think Apple is intentionally sabotaging old phones, but I also don't think Apple makes it a priority to make sure that new iOS versions run well on old phones. Like they could do, they could do more, and so you know they made some decisions in terms of prioritization. And leaving aside Apple retail, which is absolutely has incentives to sell more phones right. rather than fix phones. And that's just unless, I mean, it's just sort of natural. They would have to do a lot to kind of push away that basic incentive, which is there are people at Apple retail. I mean, it's their job to sell products, right? Um, and because they're also the manufacturer, that all gets mixed up. So I guess what I'm saying is Apple Apple bears blame here um, in the short term because of, I think, how this was not communicated. But in the longer term, they made some prioritizations and they made some design decisions. And what we've ended up with is a world where a three-year-old iPhone, that third year you own an iPhone. I, and I can say this because lots of people in my family use, I generally use a new iPhone or a one-year-old iPhone. But I got, I got kids and even my wife will only buy a new phone maybe, maybe every three years. And I've seen the performance on a three-year-old iPhone, and it's bad. Like, the battery goes bad, the performance slows down, and Apple Apple's decisions kind of have led to that point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's not just the communication issue. It's some priorities that Apple has had where they're not, you know, they're not sabotaging old phones, but they're not trying really hard to have that third and fourth year with an iPhone be a great experience either. Yeah, and, and it... I. I the replace, replaceable user replaceable batteries used to be uh, there was no such thing as a phone that didn't have one i mean sure. it was it was always you know you take off the back plate of the phone and there's a battery and that's where the sim card holder would be uh and it was a big deal that the iphone was like an ipod ipods never had re- re- user replaceable batteries either um Totally. And and again, the conspiracy theory is that Apple does this out of some sort of design spite that they don't they they find like the little access hatch for a battery to be ungainly, and they enjoy mm-hmm. they enjoy being able to. Um, I mean, they can't prevent third party battery replacements. In fact, people, you know, do it every day. But by having it be sealed up, it it certainly encourages people to only replace the battery through the Apple store and that the $79 charge that they were charging for it for years was, you know, that one of the reasons they seal it up is so that they can make $79 on replacements. Um, yeah. And it makes it that easier to just upsell somebody to a new yeah. phone and here's a trade in and we can, right. we can get you in a new phone. And, you know, because Apple, I mean, if I was running an Apple store, that's what I would do, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm much more inclined to sell a new phone than to right. sell even a $79 battery replacement. But, but the truth is that a big part, of, I think the primary, primary part of it is that it makes it possible to design uh, bigger batteries, smaller devices. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it, it's because if it's user replaceable, it has to be a, a somewhat regular shape, meaning some kind of exactly. a rectangle and there's contacts and the type of contacts that would connect the battery to the system are going to be, I think, you know, there has to, and there has to be some slack. So you, you know, you, you can get a finger in there to pop it out and stuff. Whereas if you seal it up, 
And if you look, just go to the iFixit teardowns for like the iPhone 10, and you can see the battery is like a L shape. It's not a regular shape because they, uh, you know, it figured out. Uh, it, it's almost more like a liquid thinking of it as a liquid mm -hmm. where they, any air gaps in there is a possible space where they can put more battery. Uh, famously, they even showed, they had one of those nice 3d tear down fly throughs of, uh, I think it was a MacBook air, but uh, one of the MacBooks of recent years where they showed how they created this battery in almost like a, a theater like stair step design, that right. That's right. Literally, it's it's molded around every right. every uh, bit of open space that's left in the product in order to to fill it up. And so it's not a single module. It's like a right. whole bunch of things in a stair step. And I just I just replaced a battery on a MacBook Air because uh, my the my old 2010 MacBook Air that my son uses uh, just had the expanding battery thing where he came to me and he's like, "There's a huge bulge in my my Holy MacBook Air. What happened?" Wow. And I uh, I popped it open and took it out and one of the and and but you know and I got a replacement for my fix it actually it was great uh, but uh, in lifting that out from 2010 like it's a plastic thing with like five different differently shaped battery modules on it <laughs> like right. the, even the, this is why uh, you can have a MacBook Air that's that thin is that there's no place to slide in a, right. a big chunky battery like the old days and and the iPhone it's even even more like that yeah. And, you know, batteries are better than they used to be. You know, like you you spoke about the old days when there was like a, almost like an exercise regimen for your MacBook or I guess old enough, you know, your PowerBook. PowerBook, uh, yeah. PowerBook batteries where you, you're supposed to deplete it every once in a while. And uh, you, I remember oh, the other thing, too, is you were you, – and I ran into this. I ran into this with a PowerBook that I kept mostly at my desk connected to a – it just was the – you know, I had a great power book. I almost never needed to take it away from the desk and it had a nice big display. So I was running it on power. Um, and, and it actually wrecked the battery, like by never running it on battery right. power when I did then needed to, I got like an alert in the, up in the system bar that, you know, up in the menu bar that was like, Hey, you might need, you need to uh, get this battery replaced. And I was like, Oh, well, and Apple has, ha, and and so what Apple has done to avoid stuff like that is, and and other men, not just Apple, but you know, software makers and hardware makers in general working on this stuff, um, have what what you have to do if you want to avoid that is lie to the user and risk putting them in a bad situation, but not kill their battery. So right. the right way to do it, and I think a lot of computers and phones do this now. The right way to do that in your old time would be to surreptitiously take you off power. Mm -hmm. and drain the battery and tell you everything's fine and you're plugged in, but it's actually running on battery and draining the battery and it gets to the bottom and then it flips it back on and charges back up and you are none the wiser, which is great except for one scenario, which is that moment where you need to unplug and take it. If it's down at 10%, <laughs> you're going to be very angry, right? Even though it's doing it and for good reasons. And that's always been a challenge with this kind of... Uh, intelligent battery stuff in the background is users want to know what's up and if you lie to them and they notice it, it can be bad and yeah. it's a little bit like that with this which is like we're trying to make it all seem easy but there's actually it's really complicated in the background and you know the fact is that if you're a user and you get surprised that's not good right like users don't like surprises of oh turns out 50 percent battery i actually need to shut down now nobody wants to see that
All right, let me take a break here. Uh, I want to. We're nowhere near done with this, but there's no reason not to take a break. Uh, and thank one of our good friends, and it's our good friends at Fracture. Fracture makes beautiful, thoughtful uh, prints from your photos. They print them directly on glass, ship them to you. They're made, handmade, with care uh, in Gainesville, Florida, from U.S. source materials. Uh, look, it's it, we're recording after Christmas. Christmas is over. Last time Fracture sponsored the show, I think it was back at the end of November, and I pleaded with you. I pleaded with you. I said, order them now because they get backed up. There's really no reason to, to, to talk about Fracture like in the two weeks before Christmas because they, they get backed up. It's too late. Everybody, because they are, they're fantastic gifts. They really are. But there's gifts, you know, holidays aren't the only time of the year you give gifts. So keep them in mind, you know, Mother's Day, it's months away. All of these holidays, people's birthdays, uh, really, it's such a great gift. And and it, I, I'm a terrible, terrible gift giver. I really am. I, I never know what to get anybody. I really don't like buying like uh, retail products for family members. I, I, I really don't know. Uh, if I, if my wife weren't good at it, honestly, people would probably just tell me to stop giving them gifts other than fractures, fractures, like pictures of my son for grandparents. Uh, it, 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 and it never gets old. That's the best thing about it. Like, like if you've ever given a gift to somebody and it was a great gift and they loved it, uh, it's like, well, what do you, how do you top that? You know, cause you can't give them the same thing. You you know, give somebody, I don't know, a, a bracelet and they love it. Well, what are you going to do? You can't get them another bracelet, uh, or can't get them the same bracelet at least fracture though. I'm telling you, you can like give these things over and over and over again. And as long as you're <laughs> choosing new photos to print, uh, they go over really well each time. Uh, ordering is simple. Your fractures come ready to display right out of the box. They even include the wall hanger. Uh, they have so many sizes to choose from. It's really just great. It's a green company operating a carbon neutral factory. Uh, so you can, you can feel good about that. So visit fracture.me. That's their website, fracture.me. And you will save 15% on your first fracture order with the exclusive code TALK15, T-A-L-K-1-5, TALK15. Um, don't forget to mention this podcast in their one question survey, which is literally, where did you hear about fracture? It does help support the show. It helps them know that you're coming there from the talk show. So my thanks to fracture. So here's the point. I, I spent this entire, that entire sponsor read with my iPhone in my hand to remember that where I wanted to go when I came back, which is that when we're t talking about where Apple has to take the blame in this is in their pursuit of ever thinner phones. And there's a reason why this is an iPhone issue and not an iOS device issue. It, it as far as I know, it does this does not seem to affect iPads. I mean, maybe there's there are iPads that are really old uh that have significantly degraded batteries, but I, I would suspect that most iPads that might be that old aren't even eligible for iOS 10. Uh, because they have bigger batteries. I mean, they're obviously they have bigger batteries because they're much bigger devices. Um, but because they're bigger devices, even when the battery has two years of decline, it still has enough. Uh, it, it still can provide you know the peak sustained energy that you need so that you don't you know the the device doesn't shut down. And and I think the 
conclusion, and I, I, I don't know, I'm not an electrical engineer, but I think it seems obvious that if iPhones were to some degree thicker and that thicker, thicker structure was used to put bigger batteries in the iPhone, this would be mitigated to some extent. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the way I think of it is Apple is obviously apple has some very clear battery philosophy like the ipad's quoted battery life has been 10 hours forever and iphone they clearly have like a a window they're shooting for in terms of when you take this thing out of the box how long can you use it on a charge like they they have and they have user data to back that up they know they've got some people who always leave their phone plugged in there are other people who will leave in the morning and work a long day and are working it hard and want to run it all the way through and they have some somewhere in there they have a profile that they're trying to hit it's very clear they will try to hit it with every phone now new phones have a little bit more but for a while there they were really like they had a it was not not something you could use heavily all day and get through the day but you if you used it lightly you could get through the day and i think that was sort of what they were counting on the so the more battery you put in the more weight there is and the more space it needs which means potentially the thicker it needs to be and i think you're right what the way i think of it is they were shooting to hit a minimum that served them well even though not great i think iphone battery life always there could always be more but like well enough they wanted to optimize for thin thinness and lightness but when you get two and a half years out and the battery is fatigued it's there's no headroom there like if you if it's like an apple watch like i feel this way about my apple watch series three which is I can use it all day and do a couple of workouts and do all sorts of things. It's like, I can't kill that battery in a day. It takes me a day and a half to kill that battery. Well, that's good because in three years, that battery is not going to be as good and I'm still going to be able to get through a day. And the iPhone hasn't had that kind of headroom. Very clearly, they're right on the edge where as soon as the battery starts to degrade after year two, it becomes a problem because there's just no room for, 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 uh, you know, for error. Yeah. And I'm, I've been thinking about this as this, uh, scandal? I don't know if scandal is too strong a word, but let's say scandal has has been uh, erupting over the last two weeks. And I, I, the thing I, one of the things I keep coming back to is that my simplistic gas tank analogy, it just trying to flush it from my brain because it doesn't work. And one of the ways is that, uh, and and I think what Apple's run into here is it's not just that iPhones have gotten thinner in recent years. It's also that the CPUs have gotten more powerful. And I, you know, like it, it, it doesn't seem like this was a problem in the early years of the iPhone. Like the first few generations of iPhone didn't have this two year old model shuts down problem. And I think, right. And I think part of that is that, the the maximum sustained energy the CPU could use wasn't high enough to you know that the battery didn't run into it you know like yeah it, my gut feeling is that the dynamic range wasn't even that much in terms of battery of like power draw like there was only like a certain range I the I get the impression modern smartphones have way more you know they crank up the high performance cores and they also run the extra right. cores in the in the A11 and and the the range of power that thing can draw is 
uh, pretty wide from sipping to completely killing it. And yeah, I get the feeling that early iPhones, and let's not forget the iPod, like Jaws used that example, right? Did the iPod battery get old and 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 less effective? Absolutely. But I'm not sure the iPod battery draw, you know, it it was either spinning the disc when right. if you were using a classic ipod that was a lot of power but it would spin the disc read a lot into memory and then spin the disc down again and on the ssds like there could not have been much power usage yeah. range in there maybe a little but not a lot but the modern phone like the a11 has what three high performance cores and three um efficiency cores and it can run all six if it needs to in the most stressful i mean th- and that's leaving aside uh driving the screen uh, you know uh, heavy graphics performance having an lte radio going having bluetooth going having wi-fi going like there's a lot of power draw that yeah. can come out of that thing in extreme circumstances my my guess and again i'm not an electrical engineer so i could be way wrong you know but my guess is that with the ipods that the only significant power drain was the color LCD once they went to a color LCD. That just having the display on was, my guess, it was the biggest power drain. But since they were primarily audio players, I mean, obviously, if once they could play video, that was would drain the battery. But I think it was the display being on that was taxing, not the video playing. Right, right. Because the video totally. and audio never taxed the CPUs because they always had custom chips to, you know, to decode them, yeah. Right. It was never a CPU-intensive device at any stage. Um, so I just don't think there was ever that issue. Like, I really do think the gas tank analogy held up with iPods, where the only... If you had a, a your trusty, beloved five-year-old iPod, the only real difference from when it was new is maybe that it just... You got fewer hours of playback between charges. It, you know, I, I don't think there was... And I think that's one of the reasons we all fell into this trap of thinking of the batteries as a gas tank, because it used to work. The analogy did work back then. Maybe not, you know, at the implementation level, like, the you know, the engineers who were making the devices couldn't think of it that way, obviously. But as a user, you could get away with it and never, never be wrong. Right. And and it's easier. It's a better. Me- I mean, it's a better metaphor. It's a good metaphor. People yeah. understand it. Like Apple... And tech companies in general, they have to trade in metaphors because a lot of this stuff is way too complicated for people to understand who are not who are just lay people and they don't want to understand it. And so, like, if you can find a good metaphor and you can hang your hat on it, then do it. Right. The problem is that is that this phenomenon forces us to understand that that metaphor is broken. Yeah. Um. Boy, did Apple <laughs> take it in a, on the chin from the press, or mm-hmm. and continue and continues to like even the apology yesterday. Um, uh, you know, ha- has generated some <laughs> some really interesting coverage from the mainstream media. Somebody on Twitter sent me a a screenshot. This is uh, a guy named Christopher who lives in uh, Australia and on Australian TV. What do they call those banners at the bottom of the screen? There's like a word for it, like Chiron. Chiron. Yeah. Like the little scrolling banner at the bottom of TV news had this headline. I swear to God, not making this up. U.S. colon. Apple apologizes for iPhone battery scam. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's the actual Chiron at the bottom of the TV. 
And again, I we I I think we're being very adamant here, you and I, that Apple. Is, there are things you can fault Apple for in this whole totally. saga: communication and but and design choices. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not a scam, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. Whether you disagree with the decisions they made, I really do think that even if you disagree with the decisions that they made, and you think that you sh- they could should have done X, Y, or Z different at a technical level, I I do think that the intent was genuinely to actually. It's it, that's part of what I think frustrates the people at Apple is that their intent was actually the opposite of sabotaging an old iPhone. This was their genuine attempt to extend the useful lifespan of older iPhones. Right. I think the thing to criticize Apple for here is, yes, a lack of communication, but also all of the decisions and corporate culture that led to the fact that a three-year-old iPhone would suddenly shut down with 50% battery. But yeah. the the solution, which was very clever, which was, boy, we need to do a better job of reducing power because this is a bad user experience. Like, that was a good engineering decision to solve a problem. Yeah. We just need, we We should debate the way they didn't communicate it and how they got in that position those are both i think fair places to criticize apple but like this specific engineering challenge that they solved by throttling things so that your phone didn't die that's absolutely done in the best interest of the users they they know that everybody would was getting very upset with older phones that were just spontaneously shutting down i can't tell you how many times my daughter and my wife about in the last year before they got they got newer phones would be like god my iphone just shut down again they're like furious about it and people grouse about slow iphones and i don't want to make light of it because I've seen some impossible to use iPhones that were incredibly slow, but at least they're up and you can take a phone call and you can take a picture. And, you know, I, I did, I experienced this once where I was, we were skiing with my wife's family and I had my iPhone out and was taking pictures of taking video, HD video, maybe even 4k video of my kids coming down the ski slope. And the phone just went, nope, I'm off. I'm turning myself off. And I think it was the cold that was doing it in that circumstance. But there's nothing worse than that. So, you know, full credit to Apple's electrical engineering and software power management teams for figuring out this problem. That, you know, that's not, it's not on them here, right? It's on how it was not communicated and why they had to do it in the first place. There's a, and I think I, there's a culture within Apple of never wanting to say anything negative about any of their products. Uh, And I think that's true for most companies. I mean, who, you know, you know, you go to a restaurant and how often does the waiter tell you, you know, uh, the fish, eh, you know, I mean, sometimes most of what they'll say is, I know our fish didn't used to be good, but now it's good. (laughs) That's you admit you admit the failure once it's done and in the in the rearview mirror. I I, funny story. One time I was in Denver. uh, Great city. I was only there one time, but we had a a dinner and there just happened to be uh, it was during the development of Vesper. And Dave Wiskus lived there at the time. And uh, it's. I forget even why, but Brent and I both could make it. And so we had like a weekend to work together. We did a podcast and then there were some other friends in the area and we had like six people go out to dinner and we went to some, like a steak place and, uh, they had prime rib on the menu as well. And I like prime rib, but prime rib, in my opinion, is usually either excellent or it is terrible, very tough. Um, and the waitress came by and, and somebody asked a question and she said that she recommended, you know, somebody's like, which steak should I get? And she was like, I recommend the ribeye. Um, 
And then I said, hey, what about the prime rib? Is the prime rib good here? And she said, I recommend the ribeye. (laughs) 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 I was like, okay, I'm going to get a ribeye. Yeah. Uh Uh, But, you know, Apple takes that to an extreme where they, in their prepared remarks for like a post-event product briefing, and it's always amazes me how I think I've come up with, ooh, I'll bet nobody else thought it. I've got a really good question, and I'll bet nobody else has thought of it. And I ask the question, and I get a response that it is canned. You know, like they were ready for it. You know, like I've yeah. I've, I've still never stumped anybody, uh, to my recollection. Uh, and and I, it's because you get the briefings a little earlier than I do. I will tell you they're a little more punchy at the end of the afternoon when they're, when you're at the last briefing and they just want to go. They, they loosen up a little bit. Oh, but that's I've, the trick. I usually go – I either go – I've started going early recently. I, I don't know. Somehow I got bumped up. But I used to go dead last. I used to be uh, – Oh, well, that's – that is the best time then. It was. That it is. was That's, like you got the most out of them you're ever going to get out of them right. when it's when it's four forty five and they really yeah. want to go away. Yeah, because <laughs> it was a combination of them knowing that I'm not on deadline, and right. uh, B that I I think that they you know uh, I don't, it sounds self serving, but I think that they you know maybe like talking to me more than other some other people, and that if you know. It, it could be more leisurely, like instead of getting, you yeah, know, having totally. somebody tapping their watch at twenty twenty nine minutes in, it could go 35, 40, 45 minutes and it doesn't matter because there's nobody after. But anyway, yeah, I know exactly what you you're, mean. You're, you're right. It's totally locked down. Like I've gotten answers that I thought were very – obviously, they're going to be totally locked down. They know what they're going to say. They know how they're going to phrase things. They know how they're going to address it. I will try to ask a clever question. I'll get an answer. I'll be like, okay, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. That's new. And then I will read somebody else's article, yep. like, uh, you know, and, and it'll be you or, or like Neele or, you know, just somebody, Matt Honan, I don't know. I mean, whoever it is. And you'll see the exact same phrasing and you'll be like, God, they, <laughs> that yep. was on their talking points, too. They are very well trained and buttoned up. Uh, so I think, you know, this whole issue with batteries, you know, it, it is industry wide. There is nothing worse about iPhones batteries than competing products and if anything i genuinely believe that apple's battery life and the technology they use is better than most of the competing products on the market so it's not like the problems inherent to lithium-ion batteries are specific to to the iphone it's just the way it is but apple doesn't like it's not within their character to talk about it like the this technical note that came out yesterday explaining all of the various ways that lithium ion batteries suck are just terrible. And surely, you know, this is one of those things where uh, probably not next year, you know, but it's one of those things where like one or two years isn't going to make a difference. But at some point, you know, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to have a totally different technology powering these devices. And we're going to look back at lithium ion batteries and, you know, it's going to seem anachronistic. Um, it's going to seem ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but it's not within their character to talk about these things. And it, it really, I, I really think it painted them in a corner on this. And I, you know, I think they regret it now, but for example, in iOS, you go to settings app, you go to the battery section at the top. If your battery, your iPhone battery is truly in dire condition. When you go there, it will say your battery may need to be serviced. Um, learn more and and learn more i think takes you to um you know like a web page where there's information about how to you know 
more or less telling you to go take it to an Apple store or otherwise right. some other authorized dealer. So I was tweeting about this and somebody on Twitter was like, you keep mentioning this, but I've never heard anybody get this. Uh, and then somebody, thankfully, cause I hadn't seen it personally. Uh, and I'm very kind, you know, as an aside, I'm conscious of the fact that me personally, I get, I use a new, I got buy a new iPhone every single year. Uh, and so I don't run into the problems that people run into with two or three year old right. iPhones. I, I am fully, I ran, I recognize that that is a position of absurd privilege in the, you know, it, it is a, you know, a, something that most people have the common sense not to do. Uh, it's a combination of me having enough money to do it and be lacking the common sense of putting my money in a <laughs> and and the Apple benefits from the fact that most of the people who write about their products don't use them after they're a year old. Right. Right. I right. mean, they, they don't. There are not a lot of tech writers out there rocking a three year old iPhone. There, there are some, but right. not a lot. And right. they, that benefits them. Right. But somebody who had seen it took a had a screenshot of it and posted it. And it was like, wow, you know, people, a couple of people on Twitter, are like I've never seen that. And it's because that warning isn't tied to the threshold of where these throttling features kick in. It's truly, exactly. I don't know where it is, but like, you know, it, it, it seems like there's some kind of test that Apple can perform in the store and it gives Apple a number from like one to a hundred of the health of your battery. And they won't, they will refuse to replace a battery that is at 80% or above on this test. So if you come in, you think your iPhone battery isn't good enough and they run this test and it says 81, they won't take your $79 and replace the battery. And that's interesting. And I've had, you know, there's a, Couple, I've heard from a bunch of people during this whole saga who said, I, you know, I'm so frustrated because it said 83. I know that the battery isn't as good as it used to be. I have the $80. I just want you to take it and have me come back in an hour and have right. – I, I just want to keep using this phone and I want the extra battery life. You know, what am I supposed to do? Go and, and you know, shoot 4K video continuously for two days to degrade the battery before I come back? Uh I, so I get that, but that, that warning in iOS only kicks in at something like, I don't know, let's just, I'm pulling this out of my hat, but like 20, you know, like a battery that is seriously, seriously problematic. Like, right. And Apple said that they're going to make an OS update to change that threshold, right. which is probably a really good idea. Um, right. But it goes this and the $79 charge, which is being reduced to $29 seem to me, like easy fixes in a way on Apple's part in terms of uh, in terms of uh, making this happen quickly, but it also says something like how this was really a cultural thing more than anything else. Yeah. It's like these were these were reasons to dissuade you from ever re- thinking about replacing your battery. Yeah. Uh, so one of the questions that I've seen, and I didn't really have good answer to. Somebody just asked me, literally, just like half an hour before we started recording on Twitter, like, "What's the story? What's the deal with Android phones and batteries? Do they th- throttle? Do they degrade over time?" Uh, and I do think I didn't have a chance to read it in detail, but I I posted it in the the note, and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, uh, there's a article on seeking alpha from someone who looked at uh in a non-tech article and it does seem like android at a system level has built-in throttling where certain things just naturally you know like the cpu doesn't run at peak performance you can't just run the cpu at peak performance for as long as you want until the battery dies there it will kick in like benchmarks show it 
Um, it, it, more or less, it's you know the answer is it's complicated. It is not Android phones don't run on the battery like a tank of gas. You know it it it's there's all sorts of stuff going on in Android too to make these things work. Um, but the thing I did find interesting too is and, and I I think I put it in the show notes this link to a Reddit thread about this and it's um, HTC and Motorola say they don't slow iPhones like Apple does. Like these companies are trying to make a bit of hay out of this, um, but it's a very they're very carefully they're, they're saying they don't do exactly what Apple's doing. They're not saying that they that your phone uh, doesn't throttle the CPU. Like here's the statement from Motorola: We do not throttle CPU performance based on older batteries, but they do throttle CPU performance in general. It's it, they just have to. Um, and on this Reddit thread, there's comments from a bunch of people. Uh, uh, like, here's somebody with a Nexus 6P who says that uh, it shuts down whenever it feels like. So it t- seems like it runs into the problem <laughs> iPhones had, that it just shuts down. And then there's also a problem. I think iPhones can get into this, too, with a bad enough battery, uh, where it's a never-ending boot loop, where it, oh, they right, call it the, right. boot, the boot loop of death, where the battery is in such bad shape that as you power it on, while it's starting up, it hits the point where it needs to shut down because it's not getting enough energy from the battery and shuts down, and you never you can't get out of it. Um, uh, here's somebody who claims to be a Verizon employee. It is most definitely LG's fault. It's been happening on the G3, G4, G5, and V10 models. They all happened after their one-year warranty expired, but before their upgrade periods. Uh, The response has been horrendously shit, and we are currently dealing with their own class action lawsuit. Uh, Those who cry about their iPhone slowing down because their battery is starting to suck, at least your phone still works. Uh, Who knows? Uh, You know, this is... the random person on Reddit who, you know, but there's enough people in the thread with stories like this, that the idea that this is specific to iPhones and that there aren't problems with Android and that it may or may not be worse with Android phones, you know, is all on the table. Yeah. It depends on what, you know, how much batteries in the phone and how power, what's the power draw. And like Apple has these incredibly fast processors now, but I imagine that, you know, they're already trying to regulate the power pretty severely. So it may come down to just, like, how big's your battery? And maybe Apple has been... My gut feeling is Apple maybe has been optimizing a little bit too aggressively. And I would say that maybe this is going to be a reason to motivate them to do that a little less. But I feel like Apple is... Apple has reached maybe the bottom in terms of, like, their their attempts for super thinness on phones especially since they've got the camera bump now yeah um and they know the value of having more battery so i think you know already with the iphone 10 we've seen that where they're kind of embracing having more battery and and obviously in the plus models so you know maybe maybe they are already turning this and stopping the like hyper aggressive you know let's do as little battery as we can and get away with it because we want to uh keep it thin and light yeah well the i think the most telling thing is that the iPhone 10 is actually slightly thicker than the iPhone right. 8 and 7 and 6 it's it's you know it's it's just a few millimeters i want to say maybe 1 millimeter or something it's not significant but it certainly is is significant enough that if you lay them down side by side on a table you can you can see that it's thicker um so that's you know certainly it's a suggestion a strong suggestion that uh apple has has 
gotten to a thin enough for now. <laughs> and, right. you know, eventually, you know, we will laugh. I, I another thing, you know, on the ten year time scale 10 years from now we will look back on the iphone 10 and think my god wasn't that exciting when that phone shipped but look at how thick it is it's so heavy (laughs) i mean mean, there is a point where you're going to give yourself a paper cut with your phone if it gets super thin but it is you know you can get everything can get thinner at the exact same rate except with uh if you set your battery target at 14 hours instead of 10 hours right you know, it's going to get thinner from a thicker starting point. And that's, I think that's the question here is just, you know, has Apple stopped being quite as aggressive with what battery it puts in? I mean, it still doesn't matter though. Still old batteries are still going to suck though. That there's just until there's new battery tech that does that, that works more like a gas tank, but they don't have that yet. All right. Let me take a break and thank our next uh, friend of the show. It's our good friends at Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. Look, do you ever need a website? You do something new. I don't know. Maybe you have uh, need a new personal website. Maybe you're going to start a podcast. Maybe you're going to start a blog. Maybe you are opening a restaurant or something exciting like that. You, uh, you needed a website. You know, the easiest way to make your website is Squarespace. Uh, I am blown away. I always say this. I, I, the number one reason in the back of my mind that I would think, well, I wouldn't want to go with Squarespace because I don't want like a cookie cutter website that looks like every other site, you know, and it sounds to me like if you Squarespace is the sort of thing where sure they have a bunch of templates to choose from, but it's, you know, there's going to be like 10 looks and my website's going to look like all these others. And there's thousands and thousands of Squarespace sites out there. So surely it's, it, it's really not like that at all. I mean, you really can get started and pick a template and without doing any design work on your own, maybe because you're not a designer or maybe because you don't have time, you can really just have a beautiful website that's right out of their uh, templates. But you can design it to be customized right out the wazoo. Uh, And I'll give you an example. I just this week linked to a fantastic uh, story by a guy named Justin O'Bearn. Who was a? He's a cartographer. Oh uh, yeah, who used to work so at Apple. Good. Used to work at Apple, and uh, has a series. He's more or less writing a book, chapter by chapter, on the web. I don't know how the book is going to be though, because uh, his his examples are animated. Like he'll have a. Here's an example of this block of this city uh, at this scale in Google Maps, and here's the same block at the same scale in Apple Maps, and he uses animation so you can see them one after another and see the differences. Uh, it, it inherently, you know, it's the sort of thing you, you can't do animation in a printed book, at least not yet, maybe like with a flip book or something. But anyway, his website, in addition to being a fantastic article, fantastic. If you didn't read it, you really should. I, I will put it in the show notes, but um, I, it's a beautiful he's, a, he's it's just a beautiful beautiful design too and once you see it you'll say yeah I, I i can see why gruber likes this design it's just one column beautiful type uh some futura bold for the uh headlines um so of course i got nosy and viewed source guess what squarespace he's did it on squarespace so uh Really, it's just a terrific example of something. And, and I can imagine why he did it is why he's using Squarespace is, is so much work and research goes into the article. And when you see it and you think about it and he's got examples from like years ago, 
uh, where he's been collecting these examples over the years so he can compare the rate of improvement. Guess what? All he has to do is focus on his research and his writing and his comparison and doesn't have to worry about web hosting and all of that stuff. It, Squarespace just takes care of it. Uh, really can't emphasize enough just how much Squarespace can can just take make it easy, as easy to make a website as it is to like just make a new document in, in a word processor uh, and have it be beautiful, have it be unique to yourself with your domain, your name, your design, everything you want. So next time, um, it, it, everything's going to look professional. It's easy to use, easy to set up. You do it all through the web browser, and you can start with a free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up, all you have to do is remember the code TALKSHOW, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So my thanks to Squarespace. Uh, go check them out next time you need a website. Do you love that? You love that article from Justin O'Bearn, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember I've been following them, and I, I remember linking to them before because they are so detailed, and you know that requires commitment because he's taking screenshots uh, over time of the same things, so you can see the progress. Right. Um, I think it's really interesting. It led to a really interesting conversation. I saw on Twitter a lot of things going back and forth about. You know, there's a constant debate about, like, what's the state of Apple Maps and what's the state of mm. Google Maps. And I think the latest post by Justin O'Bearn was interesting because he's pointing out he's pointing out features like Google is turning its machine learning onto satellite photos and drawing the shapes of buildings base, basically automatically based on pictures of buildings from satellite photos, which is cool. Um, although I, I saw somebody use it as an example of why Google Maps is way ahead of Apple Maps. And I'm not quite sure that as cool as it is. It's as it's a vital feature like that I would put into the hopper for like reasons why to choose one over the the other is a is a the shape of a building, especially since in my neighborhood they've got the shape of uh, my my kids' old uh, elementary school from five years ago and they knocked that school down and built a new school and it hasn't <laughs> been updated so it's not current shapes but uh you know but I appreciate that they've got them and that Apple doesn't I just I'm not sure if I was to say where in Apple Maps do I want Apple to invest more of its resources I'm not sure I would say building shapes. But, you know, but it is amazing to see the evolution and what Google pours into um, to, to maps from seemingly like all sorts of different parts of their their company and their set of technologies. Well, one of the things that it was interesting about his recent comparison was um, comparing what they're getting out of the satellite images versus Street View. And Street View is inherently labor intensive. It's, you know, it, it requires actual humans for now, you know, again, it, that might change, you know, in the coming years with self-driving cars. Uh, and certainly th the street view thing would be one of the first things that would get, you know, have the human removed from it, right? Like it, it a, an Uber type situation, you can think of more scenarios where you need human interaction, you know, with some kind of dilemma or, or a complicated route to take, or hey, I need you to stop at right. three places. Whereas street view, just set the car going and let it go. Um, <laughs> but it's even, so even taking out the human labor though, it's just, you need a number of cars. The cars can only go so fast. And, you know, so his uh, example was a small town where he grew up that still hasn't been street viewed, but all the roads are, mapped because the satellite images are you know can be processed by computers and computers keep getting faster and faster and faster and that they you know have buildings um 
they show buildings on maps, like in new developments where the roads aren't even there yet because they haven't updated the roads, but they've already identified through machine learning the buildings and have like the houses on the map, which is kind of crazy. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, and, you know, I think maps as a design challenge are fundamentally interesting i think they've been are historically interesting and so obviously you know you could argue the cutting edge of cartography is these map services is is how apple and google not just like the technology behind it but like how they choose to depict all this information and how much is too much one of the things that he's written about is like at what point do you kind of hide the information or degrade it because it's it's overwhelming how do you label neighborhoods uh, google labels neighborhoods more aggressively than apple does it's yeah. all it's really fascinating stuff yeah but and where it kicks in and i you know it's this drives some people nuts you know that uh, who you know, but I use Apple Maps. I like Apple Maps. I find it good enough. Uh, and, and I like the one thing I like about Apple Maps more than Google Maps is I like the user interface of the app itself better. And the places I tend to go uh, and where I need navigation to, Apple Maps does a terrific job of it. Uh, but I don't go many places. And I get it that there's more places, a lot of places throughout the world where Google Maps has better data or has right. data where Apple doesn't, et cetera. Um, but I also fully acknowledge and, and, you know, everything in his article about Google, Google being years ahead of Apple Maps. I, I, it's really interesting to me as somebody who doesn't drive often. And when I do drive, I tend to just not go far and I don't need navigation. Um, but I used navigation recently. Uh, just like the most recent example I can think of was going to see the last Jedi. Cause rather than go see it here in the city where the theaters, so there's some good theaters here, but the best theaters in the area are in the suburbs outside Philadelphia. And so for a special movie like the last Jedi, I want to, you know, where I buy like a reserved seat in a place with reclining seats. I, I go outside the city. Um, and I used, uh, Apple maps just to, you know, route me around. I know how to get there, but just take me around traffic and stuff like that. Um, and I think it's gotten so much better as so much obvious Apple maps has gotten so much obviously better in recent years, uh, about little things like telling you ahead of time, which lane you want to get into for an exit and explaining the, the words that, that are used to tell you about like a complicated exit, like an exit with like two exits, you right. Like you can make the, the, the sharper right to go one way and a lesser sloping right-hand turn to go a different way it's described better than i just described it you know telling you which which one you want to take uh it they're obviously improving apple maps terrifically but it's also the case that google maps is being improved at the same rate if not more and so is remaining ahead overall um I think right, I, right I, because Google Google t tends to have right. have done lane guidance sooner and you know all of those things. I use I use Apple Maps most of the time, but I use Google Maps sometimes too. And and they're you know there it is. It's fun to watch because it is an arms race. But I, I agree that Google is is ahead. But it's not true that Apple is um, is not improving that right. service. They are improving it. All the time. I think that the, to tie it all together, though, I, and again, I'm with you that putting the building's shapes on the map, I think it's interesting. I am a very visual person, and so I do tend to navigate by landmarks, and I know a lot of people do. And I think I, I do find it useful 
I would find it useful to have like a recognizable building shape on the map. Is it essential? Probably not. But I think where the magic would tie it together is with self-driving cars. And I, I know Nilay Patel, has, to mention him again, has mentioned this a lot of the times that it's like it, it, the biggest problem with like Uber and Lyft and other car companies is often getting the exact right spot to get picked up. And there's so many buildings like in New York where Nilay is and here in Philadelphia where the address of the building you're in isn't doesn't correspond exactly to where you are to get picked up. Maybe you're on right. a, you know, you're on a side street. Uh, and, uh, the example that Justin O'Beirne gets into is that combined with street view where the machine learning can pick up doors, you can combine this with, you know, the map data to, to not just know the address and the location of a building, but the location of the doors at a building. And that, that's a huge, that, you know, that, that could really change things in the, the, uh, car service business. Right. Right. I feel that way. I mean, Google has gotten much better about, um, where businesses are in like shopping malls and strip malls where if you've ever done that, I, I do that sometimes when we're taking a long drive to LA or something and we're, we're getting dinner in way out in the extreme east bay where we used to live we don't live there anymore and there's a there's a you know let's go to the burger place here on our way out and you know map apps can are like oh it's in that center right but some of these places are huge and that's the thing that i think i've noticed getting better especially with google but apple is catching up again is instead of just sort of sending you to the center and then saying good luck look for the sign um, that uh, I, I've noticed now that these services are much better at like, no, it's in this corner. <laughs> like, you know exactly where to drive yeah. to get to the thing you want to buy. And that didn't used to be the case. That They, they used to just kind of use your street address and mark it on a map and then and then kick you out. Um, and that that isn't happening anymore. So it's all it's all getting better. I think it's I think it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, so so uh, people should read those, yeah. those articles are- and look at those animations. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Apple's made a, a big push at mapping the interior of airports, and I know they just added a bunch more. Super useful, right. very very useful. Because um, again, knowing that there is a, uh, you know, like a Five Guys in the airport, and yeah, we everybody I'm with, yeah, we could all go for Five Guys, but where? Where we know it's somewhere in the airport but is it even vaguely near our terminal you know knowing stuff right, like that right you used to have to like find the airport website or like uh, maybe your airport app has the map and all of that and now apple maps and google maps have right. uh, they generally have that stuff now yeah. where you can i both of them where you can look and be like oh that's where the uh that's where the burger place is we can just walk down there yeah um <laughs> Anything else on the iPhone battery issue? There's, I, I, how about the $50 discount on battery replacement? That's pretty interesting. Uh, it reminds me, it's a, it, it's a, it, I, it's, <laughs> I'm surprised by it. I was, I, I, but now that I think about it, I'm not surprised because it's a typical Apple move when they actually recognize that they've made a mistake. Like, didn't they yep. give out bumpers with bumper, the, the bumper cases during antenna gate? Yep, right. that was it. That's what uh, it reminded me of too. Same thing, which is like, oh right, okay. We sorry, we're sorry you feel bad. Right. We're gonna. Of course, they only say it's 2018. I right. mean, let's see where this goes. I kind of feel like maybe they ought to do like a battery warranty or offer some sort of like extended battery replacement right. in general. But 
regardless, offering it for 29 instead of 79 this is the difference between sort of, all right, if you really want a new battery, we'll put it in there to saying, look, if you're having problems and we can check and see that your battery is aging, then, you know, and we agree, yes, yeah. $29, you get a new battery. Yeah. That's and good. You, you know what? The word that they used is consumable, that Batteries are consumable components. And part of the communication problem up till now is that Apple has never said that before. And the, the entirely sealed design of the iPhone certainly suggests that it's not a consumable uh component you know it's it your iphone is sealed up you can't get at anything in there and so it's reasonable to expect that like the cpu which doesn't you know wear out over time or you're the ram or the uh ssd storage or anything else that's in there you know you don't have to get your speakers replaced after two years because they're at 50 percent capacity uh (laughs) right the battery is the odd consumable component it You know, treating it differently than other things, I think, is justified in the replacement. You know, that I forget what it costs now to replace a screen, but screens are obviously something that needs to be replaced often because they're made out of glass. Phones get dropped and the screens crack. It's, you know, it's it's a one of the top issues related to these devices that's industry wide. Uh, Another one of those things that. Someday, you know, Scotty's going to come back from the future and invent clear aluminum for us. And exactly. we're going to have some kind of display that, that doesn't crack. And we're going to look back at the decades where <laughs> cracking your phone was a common problem and think, my God, we were living in caveman times. But for now, it's there. Uh, but people get that, right? And I think that the way – I think the price is around like 100 bucks now for an authorized screen replacement. Uh, it varies based on what, the, what the device is. It's certainly a major reason why people get the extended warranty. They get the extended Apple Care on their phones because they either have firsthand experience breaking the screen and wanting to get it replaced you know, as cheaply as possible. Or they're, even if they haven't done it, they're just worried about it because they know it's an issue. I think the battery needs different, a different uh, treatment because it wears out through you – know, if you drop your phone, you at least know you've, you're at fault. Well, I dropped it. I did you – know, I wish that it was made of different materials so it wouldn't break when I dropped it, but I did drop it. Whereas the battery wears out if you treat the phone perfectly. Like yes, you can do nothing exactly wrong right. except use it, and the battery will wear out. Um, 79 bucks isn't a lot, but it's a big difference from 29 bucks. 29 bucks is great. I mean, and for an authorized battery replacement, I really I think that's a great move on Apple's part. I can only guess that that's actually a, a bit of a loss for Apple. I mean, I don't know what the actual battery costs them component-wise, but the labor alone, if it takes, you know, however long it takes the the tech person in the, the store to do it, 29 bucks is pushing the limits on just what the labor alone would cost, I would think. Yeah, it's, I mean, maybe it's break-even, um, maybe it's not, but... I think there's this this I went back and forth with uh with a bunch of people on Twitter and including Neele um about this after he tweeted that that link to my article which which did I mean to be fair in 2007 uh in that interview Greg Joswiak 
basically says they're not consumables. Don't think of them right. that way. Don't worry about it. And this is a shift in Apple saying, all right, let's just let's just be clear and not pretend. But anyway, in the Twitter in the Twitter back and forth, there was this question of like, you know, Apple wants to make money totally. They're a profit making company. But what's the value of feeling like uh, they're taking care of you and providing good customer service and looking out for their customers? And I, I firmly believe that at the highest levels inside Apple, they believe that um, taking care of that person who bought an iPhone three years ago is absolutely imperative. And that what they don't want is anybody to, to Apple to have a reputation that if you you know, use your phone for more than two years, it's going to be terrible because Apple hates you. Like they want that. They legitimately want that to be a good experience, even if you're using an older phone. And I think, you know, that is so because of that, like saying, okay, it's going to be 29. It's going to be easier. We're going to, that's the value of investing. If this, even if it is a loss or if it's a break, even in investing in, uh, your customers and making them feel happy because they're going to feel it's the miracle on 34th street thing, right? It's like you, the good customer service isn't always looking at to sell you your next thing. It's to, it's to make the customer feel like they're happy to be a customer of yours and that that builds loyalty. So I think this is a case where may, you know, Apple retail, not necessarily structured to see the forest for the trees and it's like we can make a profit on this and we can also drive people to new sales which we want and um and that's great i mean i don't want apple to stop selling iphones because everybody can use them for seven years they you know people want new iphones and want to push it forward but i do think this is a case where you know apple is pushing back a little bit and saying no 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 it's it's we should make it easy for people with a three-year-old phone to get their battery swapped out we should not get in their way yeah. And by lowering the price by 50 bucks, at least for 2018, uh, that that does that. And, you know, I also think this story just helps in the sense that it makes everybody understand that you can take your phone to an Apple store or an authorized or even other unauthorized person and swap out your battery and get a new battery, which I think a lot of people don't think about that. So no. this has educated people in that way, too. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up and it is that. It seems like somehow in the course of this story, everybody with a slow iPhone, or not everybody, but a lot of people with slow iPhones are now convinced that this is the one and only reason that an iPhone can become slow. Right. Aha. This is it. And right. It's not. Aha. I knew it was something, and it's this deliberate scheme, and, and it's not. It really isn't. And, and especially if you got a fully charged your phone is fully charged and you've just restarted it and you open it up and it takes 5 seconds for the camera app to go from when you tap the icon to when you actually get it that is almost certainly not this throttling feature in the OS you something else is wrong with your phone and i i've linked to it on daring fireball it's just one anecdote but I, tons of people on Twitter have said the same thing where somebody uh, wrote a blog post and uh, they went to the, they, they saw that they have a slow iPhone six S or six and they took it to the store because aha, it's the battery issue. And the guy plugged it in and said, Nope, your battery's at like 85%. Uh, it's, you know, well within normal range, nothing wrong with the battery. Um, but his iPhone was truly slow and exasperated. He went home and he raced it, he, you know, back to factory settings and then restored from a backup and, wow, his phone was suddenly like it was he remembered when it was new. It was fast again. Um, I, I I keep mentioning it because I, I just wanted it, it, it. 
I think there's more people with slow iPhones for other reasons than this battery issue than there are who have the battery issue, or at least it's as many. And I almost think it's a problem. You mentioned it before. I almost think like the, the thing we're not talking about is the bigger problem is that iOS seems to have a systemic year after year problem of, um, needing to be wiped and reinstalled, you know, which was always the knock against windows as compared to Mac, you know, that Macs you can have, uh, you know, just upgrade to new versions and keep going and you don't have to, you know, wipe and reinstall is not part of the normal lifespan of a Mac. Uh, and it's not normal for iPhones either. I honest, I've been thinking about it and I can't prove it, but to my, the best of my recollection, the iPhone 10 in my right jeans pocket right now has a chain going back to the first iPhone that I bought at, at the end of June, July, 2007. I believe that my personal iPhone has been upgraded every single year since then through multiple devices sometimes by you know putting a review unit in in the mix before i bought my own phone um Mm -hmm. and there's nothing on you know if i thought my phone was running slow i would certainly wipe and reinstall but it's obviously not everybody and you know my my upgrade chain goes back to 2007 i'm almost certain uh but obviously some people it does and and that's you know I feel like, and it's happened, been that case for years that people, and it's, and, it, and it's all over the place too. I've heard people say, like, I've seen this too, where I, my wife's phone was running slow and she got a new phone and we were going to hand it down to my daughter. And I, and I, but I was concerned about the slowness and I wiped it and restarted it and it was far more responsive. It was fine. Right. Um, and I had that moment of like, well, that's weird. And I've heard from people who, well, that can happen, but um, if you you know if you wipe it, but don't restore. But I've also heard heard from people who, if you wipe and restore, it's fine. And I've also heard from people who say, well, it's fine for a while, and then maybe it slows down again. Yeah. So I feel like there are bugs here, though. I yeah. feel like something is absolutely here, and and this combined with sort of the general trend, whenever you have a new operating system, to optimize it for the latest and greatest hardware, and not worry so much about the old hardware. I feel like these are are similar. In the sense that, you know, again, Apple's not sabotaging your phone, but I don't think enough attention is paid at Apple to issues with two or three year old hardware. Yeah, I, I think I, on iOS. And, and I, it, it's been years. It really is. And, and I do. I, I think it actually works against Apple's own interests. Like Apple genuinely wants people to be running the latest version of ios like i i don't i don't even see how anybody could say the contrary given the way that within a few weeks of it coming out everybody who hasn't upgraded gets a very prominent alert saying hey wouldn't you like to upgrade to the latest version of ios you just click this button and we'll do it overnight. You know, it's, it's very easy to almost accidentally agree to upgrade to iOS, uh, you know, iOS, whatever point the new version. And right. I feel like there's a lot of people out there who at some point a year ago, two, three, whatever years ago had an iPhone that they thought was working great and uh, got a prompt to upgrade and said, sure, why not? And then, felt like their phone degraded significantly and thought, well, I'm never doing that again. 
I really do. I mean, I hear from people. I, I think people who read Daring yeah. Fireball and read Six Colors and listen to the show are, you know, less likely to do that. I mean, but I feel like there's an awful lot of normal people out there who got burned once and then won't do it again. And I really do. My, my mom, um, and I think a lot of people are, are, are like her, when iOS 7 happened, which was such a dramatic change in the interface. And she still feels burned by that, like to the point where she used to I got her in the habit of she would ask, like, oh, there's an update. I'd say, yeah, just you should always install the updates. And after that, not only didn't she not ask until I visited her or she visited me, (laughs) she would not upgrade. And then she'd say, well, while you're here, you can decide if you want to do this or not. And it was it was entirely because iOS 7 um, yep. was so dramatically different. And again, lots of good reasons why iOS 7 was different. But this is about taking something that seemed familiar and making it seem completely foreign. And people felt burned. And yeah. so they're like, no, forget I, it. I'm, I, I don't trust Apple anymore with updates. And it's it, been years now. <laughs> and I don't think that took Apple by surprise. I think Apple knew that there's some people would have that reaction to it. And it it's one of those things that separates Apple from other companies. Like that's why most other companies never do something like that. Like issue a, <laughs> this year's iPhone iOS looks entirely different. Like literally every single pixel you encounter from the time the screen turns on to uh, when you power it down will look different. Uh, that's why other companies don't do things like that. Uh, because, <laughs> Some people object to it and you can't please everybody all the time. Right. And so like the people who prefer the way iOS seven looked to the way iOS six looked, didn't know what iOS seven looked like and therefore weren't complaining while iOS six was the current version because they hadn't seen it. Right. It's the nature of, of, you know, human beings that it, it's a lot more likely to complain about something that changed than to complain about something that hasn't changed. So I definitely think that's the case. And I, I think you're exactly spot on that there's something systemic in Apple where they're not looking at enough of what goes on when a phone gets updated under less than factory conditions. Like if I, I sort of feel like what Apple should do and maybe they are doing this. I don't know. But I feel like when people come in to the store with a fairly recent iPhone, like let's say an iPhone 6 or a 6S that should be running fine, and they can show the Genius Bar tech, look, this is really slow. And before you even plug it in and run any diagnostics, I feel like if, if you can, you know, like, yeah, if the camera app takes seven seconds to load, that's a problem. I feel like Apple should be collecting those phones as like evidence, sealing them in a bag, give the customer something, you know, a replacement, you know, give, give, you know, eat the cost of just swapping it out with a different phone and sending that to Cupertino for like a, a dissection and figure out what the hell is making this phone slow. Or at least pull off like logs and diagnostics and things and right. see if you can. See if you can do it. I, I would go one better, and I know that they again they made they may have a team that does this, but like when so obviously they're working on iOS twelve now. That process is starting, and they'll have a beta in six months, and they'll ship it in nine months. Um, they should have people on that team whose job it is to be worried, and I'm sure they do about compatibility issues. At some point, people working on iOS twelve ought to be forced, essentially, to have their main phone be a 6 or a 6S. Yes, I do. For during the development period, right? And and be like, your job, one of your jobs is to see what is wrong 
on this lower end hardware, not just sort of like abstractly or with a unit that you keep floating around the lab, but like our customers live with, are going to live with the six on iOS 12. You, you know, we need to make sure that experience is good. And if that means aggressively turning off features or muting features, reducing their effectiveness on older hardware, like they do on the Mac, right? Where you can run High Sierra and on older Macs, you can't do AirDrop, right? right, right. I think maybe a- Apple needs to be more aggressive in doing that in older phones because the goal is they want, for security reasons, they want them all on 12 f- for a way, a long way back. And great, bless them, fantastic. They're not going to abandon them like a lot of uh, Android phone users get abandoned. But the trade-off there is if you want them to come along to iOS 12 next year, you gotta make it usable, for them yeah. otherwise you shouldn't migrate them yeah the the cutoff for what phones are eligible for ios latest should correspond directly to which phones are capable of running it well like well enough yeah. that you somebody at apple who knows what it's like to use the newest iphone can live with it for two weeks you know i yeah. but I, I feel so i feel like there's two levels of it like the first level uh is when iOS is functioning perfectly on the device, like let's just say after a factory reset and you install iOS 12 beta 1 on it, is it fast? Is it fast enough? Is it as fast as it, it, as iOS was when this phone was the new phone? And then the second level is the bugs that are obviously not intentional and aren't going to show up after a factory reset that only seem to occur after an upgrade from a previous version and, and identifying those bugs because it's two levels of complaint, right? And it's, and they're both legitimate, but the one is that even under a, after a factory reset, this, these animations are clearly stuttering in a way that they weren't when I was running the previous version of iOS. And you you know, how can you not feel burned that your phone a week ago had smooth animations but when you go back to the home screen and now you've taken Apple's advice and upgraded and now it's all stuttery and takes longer. Uh, that's a problem. Right. But then the, these bugs, that's the thing that, that I find worrisome is that these bugs with up major upgrades seem to have been around for, I, who knows, it could be a hundred different bugs, you know, and different bugs every year. But still, I really feel like there's way too many instances every single year of people who follow me on Twitter saying, oh, man, I just upgraded my two-year-old iPhone and it, it everything sucks. Yeah, and the, the thing that really mystifies me is that if when it is solvable by wiping and restoring from like an iCloud backup or an iTunes backup, when when that solves it, then it's like, okay, yeah. so it's not any of the files that got backed up. It's right. something else that's getting reset yeah. and not being backed up that is apparently causing this. Yeah. And again, you know, I'm sure there are people at Apple who, I'm sure there are radars. I'm sure people have filed bugs on this. I'm sure there are people at Apple who have investigated this stuff. And they may know some of the details and, and, and they they may not. But I have to ask, has it ever really been a high priority? Right. Because that that's one of those things where Apple, I believe Apple, that it cares about the users of its products, even the old ones. But I also believe that maybe the new hardware gets prioritized and the old hardware just kind of comes along and they don't worry about it too much. They don't sweat the details on, on if you've got a 6 or a 6S. Right. Whatever the minimum hardware is for iPhone 12 uh, or, or iOS 12, Phil Schiller should be able to use that phone running iOS 12 for a week and not call the, you, the engineering team up and scream at them. 
<laughs> right. right. I mean, it doesn't have to be the best. It's not right. going to be an iPhone 10, but it should be usable. Right. Like, it should be usable. And I've seen, like, my um, my wife's phone, before we wiped it and gave it to my daughter, um, it was amazing. Like, I would tap uh, apps, and then it just was, like, molasses. Just, like, it, it was not usable. It was it was really bad, uh, it, and it and just a, you know a wipe and it was fine. It, and it just I don't know you know there's obviously something there anyway. We've, yeah, we've said enough, but it, it, Apple should should fix it. Anything else? What else do we have on this battery issue? I, I have we I expanded know. everything? I think I think it's pretty close. I, I, f- I feel like I feel like it. I mean, this is this is one of the challenges with the internet is that there's a lot of nuance to this story, and it can be ironed out to be the um, the the Australian. <laughs> battery right. scam right. if you want to flatten it to that but that's it's it's way more complicated and apple is complicit in some things but not the things people think they are right and so you know you you get accused of sort of like whitewashing and forgiving apple and it's like no apple made a lot of mistakes at various points in this it's just not necessarily the mistakes that they're being accused of so yeah, yeah it's the internet everything gets flattened down to the battery scam <laughs> all right let me take a break here and thank our uh, third and final sponsor of the show, our good friends at Eero, Eero, E-E-R-O. Eero makes Wi-Fi systems for your home or your office, uh, and they are just terrific, terrific products. They offer more speed and more range uh, than competing products, and with really nice, elegant design that, uh, it, it. I hate to say it, but really almost Apple-like design in terms of just being little white devices that you just don't mind having invisible in your house. Um, they've got the brand new second generation part product. Uh, now the second generation Eero, which just came out a few months ago has a third five gigahertz radio. Uh, so it's now tri band and it's twice as fast as its predecessor, uh, which was a plenty fast system. So it's really a terrific upgrade of something that already was terrific. Um, and the whole idea with Eero versus a traditional router is that instead of having one router that has a powerful antenna that tries to extend the Wi-Fi throughout your entire house or office or whatever, wherever you're trying to provide Wi-Fi, you, you get multiple devices and they work in what's called a mesh network together to blanket your house with Wi-Fi. So if you're like me and you live in a townhouse and uh, right now I'm recording a podcast in the basement and I'm talking to you. I don't have Ethernet down here. I'm talking to you over in the Eero Wi-Fi system. You can, If you can hear me and Jason can hear me, it's thanks to mm-hmm. Eero. And I've got a fourth floor bedroom where we've got another Eero up there. And uh, before I had Eero, I used to, you know, our bedroom had terrible Wi-Fi. It really did because I had it. I worked downstairs. And so that's where, and we tended to live downstairs. And so that's where I had it configured to have the stronger Wi-Fi. Uh, now it's terrific. We have strong Wi-Fi every single floor of the house. Really great. Now, the other thing that they've got in the new second-generation system is what they call Eero Beacons. And the Eero Beacon is half the size of the regular Eero base station thing, which is pretty small, sort of like an Apple TV size thing. But the Beacon is even smaller. Uh, and it just plugs right into the wall outlet like a nightlight and even has an actual LED nightlight. Uh, so you can use it as a nightlight. And if you don't want it to work as a nightlight, you can turn that off too using the absolutely terrific Eero app. You just put the Eero app 
on your phone. You can manage the whole network. And it's really, really consumer friendly. It, it's, it's not like managing. You think like, uh, if I've got like three of these devices around my house, aren't I turning into a network manager? It's not like that at all. The configuration all happens automatically. Super simple. You just look in an app and it, you know, tells you everything that's going on. It's so easy. It's easy to add another one later on if you want. Uh, like if you've already got an older Eero system, you can just buy the second generation stuff and just plug them in. Um, really, really great. Easy to manage. It's Everything's protected with state-of-the-art WPA2 encryption. Uh, so you're safe. It's it's the state-of-the-art for, for consumer Wi-Fi security. Uh, I love the product. I really do. Um, I do think I think it only works in the U.S. and Canada. You got to check that out uh, uh, for more information on that. Uh, and we've got a special offer here for you: the talk show. Use that code, the talk show, and you will get free shipping to the U.S. or Canada. Uh, you can visit Eero.com at, ch- at ch- and at checkout select overnight shipping and then enter that code the talk show to make that free. So you're listening to this now. You could have one at your doorstep tomorrow for free. It's really really amazing. Uh, so my thanks to Eero. Go to Eero.com and remember that code the talk show. Uh, what else is going on this week, Jason? Uh, I got my iMac Pro. Oh, interesting. So what, <laughs> I, I have not ordered. I am not going to get one. So what did you order? Uh, well, I had to talk myself into getting one because I had the first 5K iMac. So it's three years old. And I thought they made a lot of progress since then. I'm doing a lot more kind of audio processing for podcasts and stuff like that. I could really use the faster and more processor cores of the iMac Pro. But the I could only remotely justify the base model. So mm-hmm. I have the base model that arrived um arrived on boxing day so a little late christmas present i guess so it's is, eight uh, eight cores dollar eight cores, eight cores 32 gigabytes of ram uh, yeah and the, and a one terabyte ssd i'm as i you know sat there i'm i'm not getting one uh i'm not marco arman i don't just say i'm not gonna get something and not get one i've i've still got the uh 2014 the original 5k iMac. Yeah. Uh, which is right behind me. That's the one that I'm I'm replacing. Yeah. And and I, I, I and it's an i7. I built I like I got the higher processor. It was really, I did too. It's a really great computer. It'll, got, it'll sell. I'm gonna I'm gonna sell it. It'll sell well. It's it's a great computer. <laughs> it, as I configured the imaginary iMac Pro that I would get, I thought, well, I I never get a Mac with base RAM. I always for the last few years I've <laughs> maxed whatever my my MacBook Pro has the most RAM I could possibly put in it, which is 16 gigabytes, and my iMac has the most RAM I could put in it, which is 16 gigabytes at the time. I believe the the 5K iMac right now you can get 32, um, but I have never. Yeah. I don't think I've ever bought base RAM on any Mac ever. And so I was configuring it. I'm like, well, I'm not going to get the base RAM. I'm going to upgrade. And then all of a sudden I have, I got like an $11,000 thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, uh, I never get the low. I never get the base. I always get like a middle config, but with right. this, I got the base well, and I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm pushing it, but I tried to configure, you know what I did? I tried to configure the 5k iMac with terabyte SSD, 32 gigs of Ram. Um, and like a, the i7 
And, you know, it was like $1,000 away yeah. from the iMac Pro. I, and I thought, all right, I'm just going to get the iMac I did Pro. the same thing. I configured a brand new, whatever, the, you know, the 5K regular iMac, the silver iMac. And when I got it the way I liked it, it was like $4,100 or $4,200. Yeah. So it was within yeah. spitting distance of the $5,000 base config. I, I The thing I had to bang into my head is that the base config iMac Pro is nothing like a base config regular iMac. It, it, it's already a seriously pro machine. Yeah, it's not... Um, I actually wonder about the Mac Pro. This is something that... Um, I think I'm, I wrote a piece about this the other day, that um, I wonder where the Mac Pro will start, because my guess is that the Mac Pro will start below the iMac Pro, and maybe even be less capable, but will scale up to be way more capable. And... Uh, whereas with the iMac Pro, like, yeah, this is, there's the 5K iMac is already basically a pro system. It doesn't have a Xeon in it, but it's, it's so powerful that they didn't need to go lower with the, I, the iMac Pro. Like this is any lower than this. And they're basically scraping the top of the iMac line, which why would you do that? So I felt like the base model here was uh, was pretty good. It is dangerous to listen to people like Marco, though, because you end up in a situation where um, it sounds like if you are if your budget is a little bit larger than mine, that the ten core model is is sort of a sweet spot be- mm-hmm. in terms of single and multi core performance. And then, of course, if you're um, a monster who just devours uh, computer processing power, you can you can scale it up from there to fourteen cores or whatever yeah. you want to do. But for me, it was like I was either I made a deal with myself. It's like if I do this, it's going to be the base model or or not at all because my old five K iMac had sixteen gigs of RAM and it had a five twelve SSD, right? So I and so for me, it was like. All of the base config stuff is still way better than the computer that I have. So well, let's just and, and so I did. The only accessory I bought was I like to have my iMac on a uh, on an arm instead of mm. sitting on the desk. And uh, this one is is adaptable to that, but you have to buy a, like a seventy nine dollar Visa mount adapter that is coming tomorrow, I guess. And mm. and then it'll be it'll be floating above my desk as it should be. Uh, the thing that made me laugh as I was configuring my imaginary iMac Pro was that, and as I upped the RAM to 64, and because I don't want base RAM, is I realized that I'm not buying this because my current three-year-old iMac is fast enough. Really, truly, I, I don't feel like there's anything I do on it that's slow. Uh, yeah. And it has 16 gigs of RAM. So obviously 32 gigs of RAM would it'd actually clearly be, quote unquote, enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I really yeah, did have to laugh at that. Uh, and the other thing, I would I like wrote to... something the other day where I said, like, look, as a writer, I can use a PowerBook 160 with right now running yeah. OS 8, like right. uh, like Mac OS 8. I, I putting letters on, in, into a computer does not require a lot of processor power. That is not a reason. As a writer, you don't. I mean, you start getting graphics and things like that, but as just putting words on a page. Pfft, you know, we don't we don't need this stuff. Right. It's the only reason I went here is because I'm doing more audio and video stuff, and that's that's where having a computer that's twice as fast. And I measured I measured um, on multi core stuff. It's almost twice as fast as the old model. It's like okay for for video encodes and audio denoise processing and things like that. It's going to make a big difference. That's why I bought it. Yeah, and I think for anybody, I don't edit my podcast. Uh, a good friend. Uh, Caleb Sexton does or typically 99% of episodes. Um, but I don't think, I don't know if everybody who listens to podcasts realizes how CPU intensive 
uh, the export process is uh, like it's not just like hitting Command S and you, now you've got a MP3 that saved like you know when you hit right. Command S in a text editor or something like that or, or like in QuickTime like if you open up an audio file in QuickTime and trim and uh, you know you can just hit Command S and it saves instantly as a file like the export process for like a, a podcast is pretty intensive you've got multiple tracks and it's long and probably applying applying plugins to them and they're long right. and um and and it, it adds up yeah i i have these occasionally i'll have like a three-hour recording session and it's got five people on it and three of them have like their heater going in the background or their yeah. laptop fan has spun up and so there's white noise behind them and you know, denoising, and there's there's software. There's this amazing software called Isotope RX six that can take out room noise, and it it takes out echoes in rooms. It's amazing when it works. It is like magic, but that stuff is super processor intense. So if you can imagine denoising a three hour audio file, um, and then de-echoing it on top of that, like that takes a long time. And if you've got eight of those. <laughs> That, this is why I bought an iMac Pro. It's right. like, you know what? I'm going to spend the extra money and I'm not going to have to sit there while I watch this stuff um, render or uh, or uh, denoise or whatever. Yeah. Right. And it's the sort of thing. It's just fun having uh, used computers for so long where, you know, I, you can remember like – 25 years ago where you could maybe read an article and somebody could have like a theoretical like you know in theory you could you could take the noise out of an audio recording uh you know you know here's like a layman's explanation for the algorithm and you're like oh that would be pretty clever and it would be like yeah it would, it would take you know <laughs> take 10 years yes, to... <laughs> our fastest supercomputers could would, do it in it... less than a month <laughs> like great that's, right that's <laughs> wonderful isotope came in for a demo back when i worked at macworld so it was a long time ago now and when they had just released their dereverb feature and the way they they do it is they sell like they sell a bundle for like a thousand dollars and another one for 300 and another one for 50 and like the older stuff goes in the 50 dollar one and it slowly comes down and the the dereverb is now in the 300 dollar one which i have but it, when they announced it and when they were demoing it for me it was in the like thousand dollar package and it was hilarious because they're like well we have people who are really good at math and they built this algorithm that like detects the reflections with the delays that are, of the sound bouncing off of the walls and does a transform and they like they told me like this whole story about how it works and, and you know it, it's true like it can it can do some amazing things but the amount of processing that is required to do that is incredibly intense it's amazing that a computer sitting on a desk or on the end of an arm in my case can do that at all in our yeah. in our homes yeah. but it can now it's just super um processor intense and fortunately also you know parallelized so that they can send it to all those different processor cores because that makes a difference i'll tell you the big the big difference between this one and and the imac when i was testing it my 5k imac is when i do heavy processor stuff on the imac and you, you'll know this too if you've ever done like a video encode like the fan turns on and you yeah. can hear the fan the fan starts to blow and as far as i can tell on the imac pro um, the fan's always blowing but it's incredibly quiet. You have to be listening for it and you kind of have to turn the iMac around and stick your ear down there and then you can hear it. And when I start an, an, an intense encode or, uh, or denoise, what happens is I don't hear any change to the fan sound. It just the air blowing out is hotter. That's yeah. it. It's pretty yeah. cool. I, I was really impressed at the hands-on thing at Apple when they, in New York 
couple weeks ago where they were running these high intensity demos over and over and over again, you know, it was, you know, sort of a round, round robin, you know, you go from one demo, 10 minutes, next one, 10 minutes, next one, 10 minutes. And they're just doing the same thing over and over again. And after every one, I'd put my hand back there and, and get my ear closer to see if I could hear. And I know what my iMac sounds like when my iMac is generally very, very, I would, you know, maybe Syracuse would obviously disagree, but I would define it as silent <laughs> to my ears most of the time. But I know what it sounds it, like when it's yeah. taxed. Uh, In a perfectly silent room, and you listen very carefully, you can hear something. Right. But it has to be like that. Like most of the work I do, I, I could work with music playing and... When my iMac, 5K iMac uh, fan blew on, it, it was like, even with the music playing, it's like very clearly, oh, there goes the fan. Now it's really working hard. Yeah. And just that level of background noise or having the door open to the to the uh, dining room in the kitchen here, uh, forget it. Like, forget it. I, I had to lay my head down on the desk with my ear sticking kind of like back behind to get any hint that that noise was going on and mm. so that's that's pretty impressive and that's because it knows i mean this thing is engineered for for all the thermal dynamics of these of this powerful gpu and the powerful uh, processor and so and it's got to work for a 14 core right so my little eight core thing it's not yeah. a it's not a problem it it, it just it just gets warmer uh, but the, it's a good fan a good quiet fan so i, I it's just i i really prefer it i yeah. much prefer to have that then the oh there goes the fan now everybody can hear the fan and i you know ironically as a podcast denoiser <laughs> i can i mean i that's what i'm doing that makes my fan go is i'm taking out everybody else's computer fans because that's like one of the noisiest thing on a podcast is people are right next to their computer and they're running they're on a laptop and after like 20 minutes the laptop's like okay i gotta turn on the fan now and then there's fan noise for the rest of the recording there's so. sort of a beautiful symmetry to that <laughs> Using, yeah, that's right. using a quiet computer to computationally uh, ex denoise <laughs> noise created by other noisy people's com noisy sl computers. slower, yeah. noisier computers. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll take so it you, on. You do have it set up. You're already. Are you using it right now? Or are you like talking to me? Through I am this? using it. I am talking to you through it right now. I, I have migrated. I migrated on the day. Are you? Do you use the trackpad or do you have the mouse? Which one did you get? Or did I, you get both? I got. I got. I should have gotten both because I could have sold them both. I know. But I didn't. I just got the trackpad. I and um, apparently Casey Liss is buying my keyboard because I have no need for that keyboard for many reasons. I, I, the Magic Keyboard's okay, but it's also the one with the number pad, and like, yeah. I I do not want that. I've got my mechanical keyboard here. We I have, could go down a path that'll terrify people, but I do love the Magic Trackpad, and so I'm keeping that. That I I think the Magic Trackpad is great. Yeah, I, I've got a Magic. That's the only modern Apple input thing i use i still got my extended <laughs> keyboard too i've got my old 1999 logitech mouse with a ball in it uh that i use as my mouse oh yeah uh, i uh, used to use that so that's exactly what i used to use as a was a trackball but i finally did convert no not to, a trackball i have a mouse the, uh, the mouse has a ball in oh it. the the mouse oh you've got the oh old school mouse yeah Wow. Because it, okay. uh, I, for some reason, every time I've tried one with a laser, I, I have it set and I have a third-party mouse driver to run my mouse at super speed for RSI issues. So I really only just oh, move okay. my fingers, not no, that my makes wrist. Sense. And the that makes sense. ball actually seems to work better at the insane mouse speed that I use. Hmm. Uh, That's cool. And it just... All right. You know, so you're... You're as old school as it gets for input devices. Except I have the Magic Trackpad, which I, I do love for right. various things. Um, yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. I don't have any other questions about the Mac though. That it, it, it's. I mean, it's a it's a it's a really fast iMac. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. I, I I said on Twitter when I got it, I'm like, yeah, it's fast, and people are like, oh boy. Uh, you know, that's, that's really great. Thanks for the first impression. But like, if you know what a 5k iMac is, you know what this thing is. It's just darker (laughs) and faster, but like, it's the screen. It's got the beautiful screen. It's got, uh, I haven't had a computer with Thunderbolt three USB-C ports on the back and I've got those now. Um, and I had to, I took my first trip to Dongletown as part of the migration because I had to dig out, I did have one, I had to dig out a Thunderbolt 2 to Thunderbolt 3 adapter so that I could uh, put my old iMac in, in target mode and uh, copy the data over to the to the new iMac. So mm. I had to, had to get a dongle out for that one. What do you use? Here's a question. I, I've been reevaluating my external drives recently because I've it's gotten to the point where where external USB 3 SSDs are at the price that I would consider paying for for just like my super duper clone of my startup drive. So like I'm I, it's like I've I don't use I haven't used a computer with a spinning hard disk as like the startup disk for a couple of years now ever since my iMac I guess. Uh uh I got the iMac and this MacBook Pro uh both in 2014 I think and they both have SSDs. Yeah. Um but you can get, I, th- I think you can get a one terabyte USB three SSD for like five hundred dollars. I, I I forget, but it, it's a reasonable. I think price. I have a, I have a Samsung um, USB SSD. I think it's a five twelve, and it's impossibly small. And I use that sometimes uh, for offloading things. Although now my internal storage is twice as much, so I won't have to do that as much. I have a I have a Mac Mini server. Um, that it has a a, a raid hanging mm. off of it, um, and it's you know I've got like nine terabytes of stuff on there. I've got a bunch of po- podcast archives and 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 it's a Plex server, so I got movies and TV shows on there that I've ripped from Blu-rays. Um, I like it. I love having that space. I am starting to think like at what point <laughs> could I move to SSD? for that because i don't like spinning discs right i, I, I mean they're either, unreliable right. they're hot they're loud they're so i loud. really would like to kill them but um but at the same time i really like have 10 like having i mean i have seven terabytes free i like having 16 and a half terabytes right. of storage kind of on my gigabit ethernet network over you know around the corner where I can just dump big files when I'm done with them and keep the one terabyte on my iMac relatively light or back in the day, the 512. Yeah. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're getting there. We're getting close. But the fact that Apple uh, still makes the iMac where by default you get a spinning disk drive. Yeah. It's, I think it's not even by default you get a fusion drive. By default you just yeah. get a spinning disk drive. That shows you how much more expensive SSDs are. And on products where Apple wants to make the price as low as possible within their margins, um, you know, I I guess what I'm saying is I really want the iMac to be redesigned like the iMac Pro was to remove the option of a spinning disc, but I understand why they haven't done it because it is way cheaper. It's just, it's so much worse technology in so many different ways. So I hope... One of these days, I can I can move my outboard storage. But as it is, I've got sort of like five feet away from me, um, in, in a in a little uh, sort of in a drawer of some old IKEA furniture is uh, is a, a raid that ticks along. I can hear it ticking every now and then when the time machine backup goes on. 
but um, I'm willing to deal with that because I, I just having all that storage is too good. Yeah. There's like a life hack that I've never followed, but it, it, I understand the logic of it. But I've heard numerous times over the years that some people say what you should do is throw out all of your socks and buy like uh, 10 pairs of the exact same sock. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's like a like a nice like a dark gray sock that you could wear in all situations, and then once a year throw them all out again and buy buy however many more you need, and then you never have to pair socks. You just you could just sure throw all your socks in a sock drawer and just take them out. I do the same thing sort of with my external drives, where I tend to buy like if I feel like I need like four external drives for various things, like a super duper clone and. Uh, an external storage for media that I don't, I can't fit on my, or, or don't want to fit on the internal drive on my iMac. Uh, but I tend to buy like four of the exact same drive or the same drive from the same company, but maybe with different capacities. Um, just so that I, I don't know why I don't really, it's a little illogical, I guess, but I kind of like the idea that if I know they're all have the same thing and they use the same, technology to connect, you know, like going back decades, firewire right. or, you know, whatever that I know they're all going to work with this Mac because it seems like that's one of the little things that still changes every couple of years. Like you said, you had to get a Thunderbolt two to Thunderbolt three adapter. It's like one of those things where like these, the drives last so much longer than they used to, especially SSDs, SSDs, you know, you know but I've run into the situation where it's like, I've got like something, you know, a bunch of old movies or something on a hard drive and I can no longer connect it to my Mac because the adapters have changed so much. So I've gone yeah, and I bought just, I, I bought these Samsung T5s there. I just looked up the prices. So 1 terabyte yeah. Samsung T5 portable SSD is only 350 bucks and the 2 terabyte is $700. So you you don't even pay any kind of premium. You know, it's exactly the same dollar per terabyte. USB 3.1. Yeah, I've got uh I've got one of those here. Uh, I think mine's the 512, but it's a T3 and it's, you know, it's kind of a joke how um, how small it is like on with the with the visa mounting bracket on the back of my iMac I was actually able to just um, stick the drive in the little kind of ridge of the mounting brackets right. because there's enough room for the for the SSD to just sit there like yeah. it's just it's nothing it, it actually it's so small that my biggest complaint about it is that it's hard, I can't really get it to lay flat on my desk <laughs> It's, it's yeah, like... the, the the tension of the cable will lift right. it or rock it. Yeah, it's, it's it's yeah. So I have a vision of that of of having like a at some point being able to have like a RAID that is yeah. just like ten terabytes of SSD. But that right now would cost uh, a lot of money. That would be that would be thousands of dollars. But right. it'll, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, it's like I've never used an SSD for Time Machine. Uh, but now it's like I want to go SSD only, so that's why I bought one of these one terabyte things to like replace my Time Machine drive with USB. The only thing that's a little uh, like I've got enough slots on my or, or USB ports, I should say, not slots, but ports that I can plug these things in, and it's like I'm never quite sure what what's okay to put through a hub. You know, like my keyboard and mouse, I go through a USB hub because it's obviously not super. You know, you don't need high speed performance, but I feel like a an SSD you want plugged right into the computer. Uh, maybe that's not logical. I guess I could benchmark it. Uh, but the one thing about these modern, like the USB three drives is that you can't daisy chain them. 
you know, like in the old days with Firewire and with Thunderbolt, you could like use one port on your computer and have like a drive plugged into it. And then a next drive gets plugged into the first drive and a third drive could go in the second drive. Right. I don't, that's not a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, at one point I bought a bunch of, of, uh, Thunderbolt or maybe they were Firewire 800. Yeah, I think that was it. Drives and they were like terabyte drives and I and I could chain them and they all had external power bricks and it was awful. But yep. at least they were all like you said, all of the same kind. But that was, you know, and so that was that was something I had to do. And now you're right. I mean, one of the things I always hated about having a local time machine drive is that then you have your computer attached to this drive that is big and hot yeah. and has a power brick and all that and one of these samsung ssds you're absolutely right you could you just plug it in there and i mean you could basically tape it to the back of your computer yeah. and never see it and yeah. it would just sit there yeah i almost feel like i i would almost have rather have it like have the usb thing connected to it and just plug it in the usb port as a dongle in the back you know just have the whole drive yep. st sticking out back there anyway mm -hmm. That's my advice to everybody: is get rid of your spinning discs and get these SSDs. If you can't, if you can afford it, get yeah. off the spinning discs. Yeah. yeah, the only really, it's it. I don't know. I, I it just feels good. I feel safer getting getting my <laughs> getting them out of there, even if they're backup drives. Um, one last thing I definitely wanted to talk about is you and I uh, had a Twitter conversation a few weeks ago. Speaking of storage, I forget how it started, but we were talking about somehow on Twitter we got into a conversation about that. In iOS, they've added a files app to iOS 11, and it's really useful in many ways. But it's entirely cloud-based. So, you know, you can get your Dropbox in there or your Box account, and your iCloud Drive, of course, shows up in there. But if you plug an SD card into your iOS device using the adapter that Apple itself sells to connect an SD card to a Lightning port the SD card does not show up as a destination in the files app. And that seems like madness to me. Yeah. It's in fact, um, it's something, so you linked, you did a linked list story to a thing I did on, uh, six colors about this gadget, this, uh, That's Kensington it. mobile light right. thing that was, um, is what I use now when I'm traveling with an iOS device and I want to use like a portable flash recorder, to record audio and then edit it. And then how do I do that? I can edit it on my iPad, but how do I get the files back? And even with Apple's SD card reading dongle, um, all it'll do is launch the Photos app and say, would you like to import any um, videos or photos on that card? So it will, iOS will access an SD card, but only two file types. And right. that dates back to, I mean, it's a camera thing. It's like just thinking of it as, a, as for camera imports. Yeah. And I thought when files came, it would be like the moment where Apple is like, all right, you want to attach a, a, an SD card or a USB hard drive or connect to a an SMB server? Um, well, fine. You can if you want to do that. The Files app will do that. Go ahead, and it just hasn't done it, and it, it kind of baffles me. And I know I got a lot of pushback. You and I, you yeah. saw some of it, where people are like, "No, no, no!" But the future is wireless and cloud and all those things. And I just keep coming back to, you know. That's all true, but if you're somewhere where you can't sync a file up and then back down from the cloud with slow internet or no internet, um, if if the iPad Pro is meant for business users and somebody's got a PowerPoint on a keychain drive and they hand it to you and you have your iPad, it's like you can't 
get that file. You can't. <laughs> right. Not even I, with any adapter in the world, you can't do it. It turns out there are adapters that do it, but they're like special adapters with third-party apps on yeah, iOS yeah. that talk to the card, and then you move it into the app, and then the app can send it to other things. It's just Or like this thing, which is a Wi-Fi-based station, basically, that you plug your SD card into and then connect to the Wi-Fi and transfer it using its third-party. It's right. fast, which is why I use it. But and there are other ones. There are little weird adapters too. It just seems silly that that um, it, it's a legacy of Apple kind of putting file systems at at, at uh, arm's length in iOS. But they kind of gotten over that. And yet, when I think about the iPad Pro, um, especially, it just seems a little bit silly that uh, you know they're not forcing the files app in people's faces. It's for people who need to access files. Why wouldn't you kind of broaden it a little bit? Because the fact is, yeah, in the future cloud uh, uh, unlimited internet everywhere at full speed like i get it but the reality of of the present day is that it's gonna take a long time for like my audio recorder doesn't have wireless in it it's not gonna it can't auto upload to dropbox and and like i recorded a podcast out in the middle of the nevada desert after the solar eclipse and like i didn't have good internet there to upload that file i I, uh, you know, I just ran, ran it on my recorder. And then when I got to Wi-Fi somewhere, I wanted to upload the final version. And, and that was not something I could do without a weird third-party app. So it, 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 it's, it's just one of the strange, strange gaps in iOS that still exists. It's just so super frustrating if you've got, your, you've got it right there in your hand. In your, in your right hand is like an iPad or an iPhone. And in your left hand is an SD card with a four gigabyte video on it or something. Well, you know, if it's something... a video, it'll imp- if it's a video, I, it'll yeah, import. That's, guess... that's the most frustrating thing is you've got a you've got an SD card plugged into an Apple adapter or a USB stick plugged right. into an Apple adapter, and it's looking at that right. SD card or that stick, and it sees all the photos right, and right. all of the videos on it. But you know, there's a PowerPoint file or a Word file yeah. or an audio file yeah. on there. An audio is a better example, right? And it's just like. Forget it. That it's just like literally, the OS doesn't want to know about it. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand how we got here, um, and I understand why people have this tendency to say, "Well, you know, the future." Like I get that too. But the practical present of this, and I also, I, I'm always amused when people kind of come to Apple's defense for a missing feature by explaining how um, Apple just can't do it it's just too hard an engineering challenge too hard a ui challenge i'm like really (laughs) like i have a great confidence in apple to solve these relative like the implementation details of this in order to they're already reading an sd card they're already reading usb media they just don't want to show it right um it's there are security implications i realize you know like if you talk to like people who really know their their stuff with uh, security that you know usb sticks are dangerous they can be you know that there's sure you know it, 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 there's reasons you shouldn't stick a unknown usb stick into your you know laptop um but on ios in particular you know it's up to apple to do it it's not like i'm a- asking for any app to be able to read and write to the file system you know and and the way that files the files app works is very careful you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not like you've got real access to the full directory of structure of the the startup disk in your iOS device. 
You know, they've, they have, even with the Files app, maintained a difference between the file system that the actual system is running on and the files that are exposed to the user. There's, it's, right. you know, it, it, there's no reason they couldn't continue to do that, take that approach to something like an SD card and that you can move it right. from the uh, SD card to some other safe location, not like willy-nilly you can put it at the exactly. root level of the startup drive. Exactly, because it's already in a sandbox somewhere. And and that's, you know, it's, it's uh, I know it's a little thing too, but uh, when I try to think, I, yeah, I, and I do hit this myself, which is why I write about it. And whenever I write about it, I hear from people who are like, oh, wow, I, I, I've also struggled with this for this reason. Or I bought this other weird gadget with another really awful, because all these third-party apps for these things are terrible. Uh, but, but they have to write them because it's the only way the product will work because there's no system level stuff to do it. So um, obviously some people out there are trying it. And I think, I think when Apple turned the corner to make the case with the iPad Pro that like it, it's, a, it's a device for getting work done, that's when these scenarios start to occur to me, which is like, you know, again, I had this happen when I was in Yosemite where the internet is terrible and somebody wanted to give me a file and I couldn't load it on my iPad and we had to figure out whether we could get it on some other device that could maybe do airdrop, but it got really complicated and it didn't need to be. And I've been on that, that you know, it, it, on airplanes and stuff too, where it's like, I'm not going to sync right. all of this data to Dropbox over the internet. Uh, from an airplane and then sync it back to the other device. It's just, it's not going to happen. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a little detail, but it's one of those things that, I mean, what, when people get angry when I talk about this, what blows their mind is the next thing I say, which is, I think maybe the iPad Pro at some point should have USB-C instead of Lightning, because if it's a real computer, maybe you should just embrace it. Um, and maybe that's a bridge too far, but I, I think it's worth ask, asking the question, like, what, why are there still roadblocks? I think Apple's iOS development, at least as far as the iPad concerned, should all be about, like, eliminating those last roadblocks that people talk about when they're like, I really want to use the iPad to do this, but this thing... And they've, and they've eliminated so many of them now that the ones that are still there really just kind of uh, stick out. And that's, that's one of them. I know it's not ideal. It's the same way I feel about having to um, sideload files onto the iPad using my Mac um, I, because they're big files. They're audio files. And then people are like, oh, you could airdrop them. And you could use iCloud Drive. It's like, but it would be so slow. It's so much faster for me to connect it with a cable. But all of those file transfers have to go through iTunes. That's yeah. stupid. It should just show up as a disk yeah. on my Mac. It doesn't have to be a real disk. It could be a right. fake disk. But I, right. I should just be able to drag those files in without launching iTunes. But no, I know why we're here, but it would be nice if somebody at Apple could be like, okay, that's bad. Let's just let's, let's eliminate that roadblock now. Right. But, it's obviously uh, exposed some them, in some yeah. way because you can get to it through iTunes, but doing it through iTunes is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, you have to go. To, you have to click on, it, and especially now that we don't sync our devices very much, or, or if at all, in iTunes anymore. It's like my one obligatory trip to the iTunes device area. Right. And I I use iTunes all the time for music, but it's that moment of like I plug in my iPad, I click on the iPad, click on apps, scroll to the bottom of the window, click on the right app, and now I can drag files in like it's like it's the Finder, like except the, it's not. It's the worst Finder right. replacement ever. Right. Like say what you want about the Finder, and we could do a whole two hour podcast with Syracuse, and we could do a four hour podcast with Syracuse about nothing mm -hmm. about gripes about the finder today in 2017 but at least the finder is primarily uh designed the intent of the app 
ever since 1984 has been to expose files and make it useful to move files and do things like rename files and move them from here to there. Uh, that's what the app is meant for. And you have that app. And then you've got this other app that was designed primarily to play music. <laughs> and you've got to use that app to move files around. It's yep. Crazy. I mean, it's great. You can do it. Don't get me wrong. The, the moment when right. I discovered that there's a, a secret place in iTunes in the apps tab down at the bottom where you can literally just you can delete files and you can drag files in and it totally works. It's amazing. But it is so stupid that that's where it is. There's probably a lot of people um, listening to this yeah. who are like, what? You can do what? And they're going to plug their iPhone into their Mac and then go to iTunes or, yeah, and navigate to the devices and then go <laughs> go down to the bottom and see this and they're going to be like what you're going to can't believe it yeah just i mean and again why do you need to do that it's only if you have like a big file otherwise if a little file on icloud drive or something like that it's not going to be a problem but um you know i i sometimes have like big files that i want to put on my ipad and doing it by wire is way better than like putting a giant file in icloud drive and waiting for icloud drive to sync it all the way up and then immediately on the other device, turn around and sync it all the way back down. That's that's sort of silly. And if I've got unlimited time, I can do it that way. But it's uh, it's it's silly that that's the only way I can do it. Uh, last but not least, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I know you'd appreciate it. Did you see that thing I linked to the other day that this guy Dan Liu wrote about computer latency from 1977 to 2017? Yeah. So he, he like took like a high-speed camera. And with a bunch of different computers running a bunch of different operating systems from a bunch of different eras, measured the time from when you uh, the high-speed camera captures the key moving on a keyboard and the letter pressed appearing on screen in the terminal app on that device. Uh, and the fastest performing, lowest latency computer he tested was the Apple IIe, which is it makes me laugh but it, it it's funny the way he phrases it where he just had this vague notion that computers are, are slower than they were when he was a kid and wanted to actually measure it because you know human memory and and you know is funny like that that you might be very you know could have tested it and found out he was very wrong and then he has a terrific uh he's an electrical engineer by training and has a terrific explanation for why this is so and actually pretty reasonable given what modern computers are doing uh, but uh, the other thing that cracks me up is that it always comes down to like the the ti 95 99 4a or whatever it was called performed pretty well too it was like second place but not as fast as the apple 2e and it always comes down to waz was a genius right (laughs) right there's like all sorts of like crazy optimizations where there's like uh, you know it's like the 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 whole level of abstraction between the key being pressed and it being sent as a signal is gone because of the clever design of the key switches in the apple II. but that actually it i started reading this article a couple people said gruber you're gonna love this and i did love it uh (laughs) But as soon as I read it, I thought, you know, I always think the same thing. It seems to me, it always seemed to me that it, that the input on like an like an Apple II was super fast, and it, it and and it doesn't like it's one of the things about like running emulators that it just does. It's not just that the screen technology is so different that it looks different and doesn't feel the same. It does. No matter how fast your computer is, it never feels as fast. Yeah, um, 
I mean, I talked about how I could do my job and you could do your job on a PowerBook 160 running right now. Right. And it's a, it's a little bit like that. I, every time there was an update, right, there gets more stuff in the way. They're like, oh, we got a more powerful computer. We can put more stuff in the way. And whether that's graphics or whether it's subsystems or whatever, uh, font support, whatever it is, because we've got the power to deal with it, um, which is true. But it also means there's more layers between you, uh, you know, between the keyboard and the display. And latency is a place where it where it uh, it happens. I guess this is really good for like, um, was it George R. R. Martin writes <laughs> all of his books on a on a. Uh, like a WordStar running command on my, line like a, PC, like a 286, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just like he's got the muscle memory. I totally get why he does that, um, and it's all like not even a GUI; it's all command line kind right. of stuff. But his latency is super low. I'm going right. to guarantee you that that he types it there, it comes out there. And uh, it's funny. I was just uh, I was just starting up. I, I have an Apple IIc, and I was I, I'm going to try to get some of my old files off of it. And I had that moment where I'm like, oh, this feels pretty good. I mean, like the keys really move, and they they make a nice kind of clacking sound. And and uh, yeah, it's there's there's something to be said for that old retro stuff. We prioritize different things now. Um, plus, displays our displays are so much richer, and their their uh, refresh rates are not as high as the ones in the old days because right. they're so much richer. There are lots of good reasons why, but still. Yeah. The Apple IIc is one of my all-time favorite designs. Uh, Guy English and I both swear by it. And, and I think on Twitter, we even, we were like, Guy and I were talking recently on Twitter about how like it, it could pass for like, a, in, in many ways, pass for a modern computer. Uh, and some people are like, you guys are nuts. That thing looks ancient. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I think I'll put a link to it, the show notes. The two C to me was uh, just. I, I was. Stunning. I had a two E. I, I was a two E guy. But when I when I was buying one off of eBay because I sold my two E. Sadly, when I um when I bought my first Mac, I I wish I had kept it, but I know why I didn't. I wanted the money. Right. But um. So on eBay, <laughs> I bought a two C, and the reason I bought the two C is yeah, it, it it has a lot of things that um make it a lot more fuss free than the two E. Like the disk drive is in the computer which the 2e was not you the disk drive was external right. it's got uh, you know it's got video on the back and an auxiliary video port if you want to do like higher quality video it looks like a laptop without a screen right. and a lot of its design language ended up being you know fed into it's the same design language that they used when they built the the first power books it just you know it didn't have a screen although i believe it you could get like an lcd screen for it that hmm. made it like that much more portable but um the idea that it was all self-contained it's got a huge power brick but it's self-contained and it's got its own disc on the inside like that was a big that was a big step for apple because the apple twos were all you know everything was outboard yeah. and and it was also more hobbyist you know i had slots card slots that i could flip open in the apple IIe, and the apple IIc is a sealed container um like a modern computer yeah yeah, it's 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 an interesting one to look at as where Apple was going, and you know, and it was a machine that was uh, came out of the uh, era while Steve Jobs was in exile. Uh, yeah, at Next uh, or no, no, I guess not. It says it was released. Well, here. it came out. It came out nineteen eighty four. The two C came out about the same time as the original Mac. But huh, you know, I didn't Steve know that. was Steve uh, not was not involved, around right. too too much longer after that and this was this was the last i mean i guess people like the 2gs i guess it was that was for me this is the this is the heyday of the mac i actually or of the apple ii i bought my my apple ii that i had um through my first two years of college i bought it 
um, right before I started high school, and it was 1984. And I realized this the other day that my 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 Apple II. The Mac already existed when I bought the Apple II, which seems like that would have been a stupid move. But the fact was the Mac was so young at that point. And the Apple II was everywhere. It was in my elementary school. It was in my high school. All my friends who had computers had the Apple II. We could trade discs and stuff. Right. And that was, and it gave me, it gave me six years or five and a half ish years through high school and the start of college. It served me really well. So the Apple and, and, and the Apple II, Apple made huge amounts of money on the Apple II in the 80s, we think of it now as like, then the Mac era began, and that was the end of the Apple II. And it's not true. Like, the Mac took a long time to kind of get up and running. And during that period, the Apple II was what was fueling Apple's economic engine. Like, to the point that I realized um, when I started as an intern at Mac User Magazine, elsewhere uh, in the universe at that moment, there was still an Apple II magazine. <laughs> like, <laughs> even in 1993, they were still publishing like a plus insider magazine for the apple II, so the apple II lived a lot longer than than i think like conventional wisdom has it now where it's sort of like well then the mac happened and that was the end of the apple II. it's not true the 80s were like the apple II's uh golden decade there was really no upgrade path from the apple II to the mac i mean the the no <sighs> the two the 2GS had a finder, which was yeah. super weird because yeah. it just couldn't. I mean, they tried to make it, they tried to retrofit it to be Mac-like, yeah. but it, it really wasn't. It was unnatural. My big upgrade path was I bought a 3.5-inch disc for the Apple II um, because there were Macs that I was using elsewhere at my college. and But in my dorm room, I had the Apple II. So with the 3.5-inch disc drive, there was a, there was an app on the Mac called Apple II File Exchange, where basically you could stick an Apple II formatted disk in onto a Mac, and it, it looked like font DA mover. It was one of these things, or like <laughs> transmit is today, where it was like the files on the floppy are here on the left side, and the files on the on the Mac are over here on the right side, and you'd click and press the arrow button, and it would very slowly kind of grind. But that's how that's how I ended up printing all of my papers my freshman and sophomore years in college, is I'd write them on the Apple II, put them on one of those floppies. Um, <laughs> take it to a computer lab or the college newspaper office, migrate them over onto the Mac, open them up, format them, and print them on a laser printer. <laughs> so there was, that was the migration path. That's where all of the stuff that I brought when I bought a Mac was, was that. I would just put them on those floppies and then, and then migrate them back out. But that was it. That was, and I guess there was an Apple II card for the Mac for a while where you could like boot an Apple II inside of your Mac uh, in I a window. That. Which right is and super weird. Right, and it was all because there, it, because there was no real upgrade path. Like, uh, if a school had some sort of curriculum that was based on the Apple II, it, it there was no way, you know, whatever. It, there just wasn't any way to run it on a Mac. So they literally put the Apple II on a card to put in a Mac, so that you could yeah, just switch the device to be an people, Apple II. The Apple II was so popular. An awful lot of people went from the Apple II to Windows or to DOS PC. Like, that, right. the Apple II was incredibly popular for a long time. And a lot of those people didn't make the move to, to the Mac. In fact, there's I've talked to people who tell the story where they were on the Apple II and they loved it, and then they went to the PC. And it was only sort of in the 2000s with the iPod and then, you know, the right. and the iMac and all of that, that they came back to Apple. But yeah. that they actually had a previous Apple experience 
in the old days with the Apple II before they went to uh, to the, the dark side. Yeah, people. It's, it's a lot of people who took a long time. And, you know, for some some for reasonable reasons, some just because it's human nature. You don't like change. But people who got used to computers in the era when you turned it on and you had a cursor blinking on screen where you had to type something mm-hmm. to continue uh, saw the fact that the Mac didn't have that and couldn't be configured to have that as a non-starter. Whereas you could get right. a Windows or a DOS PC. You know. I always laugh thinking about it, but like for years, the the way people, st- even when Windows was was taking off and had millions of users, the way you got into Windows was to boot into DOS and you typed Win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you could exit Windows and go back to DOS and do your DOS stuff. Yeah. And that yeah. was considered Weird. normal. That was that was no, that was not. That <laughs> I had jobs good. where that's what you know. I never had yeah. owned oh, a yeah, PC. Oh yeah, me too. But I had I had jobs where that's what I would do. It's and and there were good reasons yep. for it. It actually made sense that, that Windows didn't start automatically. Yeah, sometimes I felt coming from the Apple too. Sometimes I had those moments where I would. And even when I was a Mac user, where I would be like, can I go back to DOS? I feel like I feel way more comfortable using a DOS command line than I do using Windows in, the, right. in that era. It's like I wanted to either use the Mac or I just wanted the command line. Just exactly. get, take me back to, to the It's what line. it wants. It's what the machine wanted to use. Anyway, this has been a great show. I hope you have a good New Year. hope you're having a good holiday break. Yeah, absolutely. Other than my boss being a mean, a mean yeah. jerk who want, wants me to work a lot, but uh, yeah, no, it's been good. And uh, it's like, likewise, and have a happy new year. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to 2018. I think there's going to be some good stuff in 2018. You've got great stuff recently. There's so much good stuff at sixcolors.com. Uh, you can spell colors either way. Yeah, everybody's I, I, I redirect. Um, I can't even. We don't have time to list all of your podcasts, but upgrade is no. certainly the the one that might be of most interest to. Uh, to listeners of this show with you and uh, Mike Hurley. Uh, uh, there's the I agree. Comparable, That's, the weekly pop culture yeah. podcast. I hear uh, John Syracuse was on a recent episode. Yeah, yeah, he gets, he, he's around. He gets around. That's He, he makes his pronouncements about movies and things yeah. on, on on the Incomparable. And the other podcast that maybe talk show listeners want to try out is relatively new, started in 2017 called Download. Mm. And that is, I host that, but I, I try to get two or three interesting tech guests and take a broader tech view. So it's not um, just Apple stuff. It's sort of like what a broader, like uh, what happened in tech and what the issues are. Sometimes it's details about what what Microsoft or Apple or Google did. And sometimes like the most recent one, we talked about the ramifications of the Disney Fox deal hmm. with a reporter from The Hollywood Reporter and a writer from Polygon and like like how the world of streaming especially gets impacted by everything that Disney's doing and buying Fox and buying um, Bamtech, the streaming company, and owning 60% of Hulu if this deal goes through. And it's been a fun podcast because it gets me out of my comfort zone a little bit and talking to a bunch of interesting people. So yes. that's also at Relay FM. It's called Download. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Jason. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.